Okay, guys. I was thinking about uh, personalities such as Sir David Attenborough, who studied creatures in the wild. And if the two of you were to study dragons in the wild, which dragon type would you want to study the most or ensure that you get that one studied in your lifetime? Um, I think including the new dragons in the new book, uh, Moonstone Dragons, they've really intrigued me. Um, reading through all the stuff with them and like how they inspire people in dreams and that kind of thing. I didn't expect Moonstone, but sure. Adam, <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I mean, Copper, the practical joker, I totally want to get in on that shit. I don't know how that works. <laughs> you want to be involved? Yeah, absolutely. I want to be the accomplice. <laughs> I'm not sure I can handle that. <laughs> I know, and that's why I want to be the accomplice. I think I would do, I think I would do green dragons. I would be like, teach me, teach me. How do I do this? Teach me. They're just going to eat you after like two years. They're going to get yeah. you to, to that, that perfect point where they yeah. taught you everything. So you think you know better. And then you say, and the final lesson is your food. Yeah. Never trust anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mimic. The round table Dungeons and Dragons discussion where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our discussion about dragons in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. I'm Adam, and with me today are Terry and Pepperina, and this episode is called Draconic Hordes, From Awards to Swords and Where They're Stored. We've previously covered all the chromatic and metallic dragons that you can find in the 5th Edition Monster Manual, as well as all sorts of dragon-related creatures and templates. We spent an episode waxing poetic about what powers and inspirations exist for dragons in previous editions, as well as all the named dragons that we could find in 5th before Fizzbands came out. You can find all these episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps, or you can jump over to YouTube and dig into the entire playlist on dragons that we've built there. This episode of the It's Mimic podcast is going to dig into some of the new details that we got about dragons from the new 5th edition book, Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons. How many times am I going to say dragons in this like first three minutes? From draconic magic to the multiversal awareness and fleshed out details for dragon homes and dragon items, this panel of Dungeon Masters is going to cover all of the details that you'll need to know when it comes to elevating dragons in your own campaign. But before we get started, guys... I did the math, and I think this latest book has breathed new life into our series on dragons here, which was essentially starting to wrap up. We have at least 15 more Draconic episodes in our future after this one, and it just doesn't feel right not to have Instagram's Mother of Dragons permanently join the cast of It's a Mimic. So, Pepperina, Sparkle Gem, we're thrilled that you finally joined our ranks, and I'm glad that we've got you all signed up for our dragon episodes moving forward. But I have a couple quick questions for you. Okay. <laughs> First, first and foremost, because everybody's heard Terry and I go off about, about dragons. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, yes, Adam needs more dragon eggs, and Terry should stop dropping people from the sky. <laughs> yeah, I just <laughs> summarized like 12 episodes. That's, oh, yeah. that's it. That's all Thanks of it. Thanks for coming. <laughs> oh, Peps, what's your, uh, what's your favorite chromatic dragon and why? Uh, my favorite chromatic dragon is the black dragon. Um, I think it's just the most dragony of dragons. Like, it really doesn't give a fuck. And it will do whatever it wants, and it doesn't care about the outcome. It is definitely the most evil with a capital E of all mm -hmm. of them. Uh, what's your favorite metallic dragon and why? Uh, brass dragon. Um, but no I one I, ever. That's an odd one. I think I am a brass dragon. <laughs> ah. Yeah, um, which is why you guys got one from me. 
<laughs> um, yeah, I like that it collects sentient items to talk to because that's essentially why I have an Instagram and talk to people. <laughs> you, you, you collect people and call yeah. them sentient items? Is that what it is? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> if, if you could be any dragon, what mm -hmm. would it be and why? I mean, obviously Tiamat. <laughs> like, I love that. Stop. I love it. Straight to the god dragon. <laughs> yeah. Like, a silver or blue. Or if you could be any dragon, why would you be anybody other than Tiamat? I mean, nope. fair one. I yeah. know nobody else thought of that, but it's true. Just so everyone is aware, we have now stacked Terry and Pepperina on these, and they're both freaking Slytherins as far as the eye can see. Like, like the, I am a Ravenclaw, thank you very much. You, you just declared that you would be Tiamat if you could. <laughs> this, we have now gotten the two, well, two of the three most evil people on the podcast now on Dragon Episode. You can guess who the third one is, you might be surprised. I never thought I was evil, I always just thought I was truly neutral. Hmm. It's not an agenda, it's that I don't yeah. I just am chaotic as fuck, is pretty much. Which is both how um, evil characters would describe themselves if you were to ask them what their alignment is. I'm not evil, I'm just chaotic as fuck. I consider yeah. myself more neutral than anything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that, that's where we are. You might, you might have a point. I might have to rethink <laughs> just my whole existence. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Uh, let's jump into the actual meat of the episode because Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. Okay, so I'm going to be totally clear. Whenever a Draconomicon comes out in an edition, I consider that to be the last good book and then a jump the shark and it's full of bloat and the edition is just destined for doom from here on out. I really don't like it when they say we're doing a dragon book because that's when I check out of an edition. Um, when they did in 3.5, I stuck around for a bit, but I started moving to other um, campaign settings when they did it for fourth. I moved on to Pathfinder when they did it for Pathfinder. I stopped playing for a while. So um, normally when they get to the point where they're focusing on a single creature or group of creatures, the the edition has run out of new, fresh, interesting material. And you can feel it when you're reading that book, that they're really grasping for straws. Fifth edition, however, has given us this Treasury of Dragons, which has an entire section called Draconomicon on it. But this didn't feel like bloat to me. This didn't feel like it was additional extra garbage just for book sales, because they need to release something at the end of 2021, right? So um, I was really, really, really happy with this book and genuinely surprised with uh, everything that they gave us. Hold on one second. Some selfish prick just sent me a message. Dan. Dan. I was going to ask if it was Dan. <laughs> You know we're recording right now. Shut up. Damn it, Dan. So let's jump into the very first thing that they added to 5th edition. And it is by far my favorite thing so far. Um, because I have some problems with the way that the Pantheons work out, with the multiverse works out and whatnot. And what they did was they gave us something called the First World and the um, this new uh, elegy for the First World. Right at the beginning of the book, right after the table of contents, they give us this like eight or ten paragraph poem which is kind of it's an elegy which is kind of like a sad lament it's it's a song think about like those tolkien songs that the elves were singing that lasted 95 goddamn pages and nobody read all of it's like that but a lot shorter and actually worth reading um come at me tolkien fans uh but let's let's break down kind of what it means and and why it was added so in the beginning there were dragons 
Before light and darkness, before land and sea, before mortals and gods, there were dragons, Bahamut and Tiamat. And together they made the first world from pure chaos, and they covered it in beauty. And all other worlds and planes and dimensions and universes that we know now are mere fragments and echoes of the first world. These two dragon gods created Sardior, the first dragon, and the god of the gem dragons. Sardior is known as the Ruby Red, worked with Bahamut to create the metallic dragons and with Tiamat to create the chromatic. These dragons were the first beings in the material plane and have power and magic because they were avatars of the primordial energies that were the building blocks of the first world. Follow me so far on that because that's, that's a lot. We're getting into creation level myth at this point. So Bahamut and Tiamat came first, they made a third one, and this third one teamed up with them to make all of the others out of the primordial soup and energy, essentially, that, that the world is, is built upon. But then mortals came, and with them came the gods, which means that Bahamut fell and Sardior hid because there was war. And Tiamat fought and fought and fought, even in the face of certain death. But her conquerors decided that instead of death, she should just be imprisoned in the Nine Hells, where she dwells even to today, desperate to break free and seek vengeance. So, the dragons came first, they made the world, then the other gods and the mortals came and unmade the world, and then punished the dragons for doing it in the first place. This does not paint us in a good light. So, mortals took over every part of the material plane, and Bahamut worked tirelessly to sue for peace. And finally, he brokered an uneasy balance. The metallic dragons followed their father's examples, and looked to embody benevolence and happiness, but Tiamat's chromatic children could not abide by the mortal stain upon the world, and now they revel in destruction and vengeance. But no matter the kind of dragon, their pride, territorialism, and power runs strong through their veins. And most of these dragons have not forgotten. Of Sardior, there is little other mention. Some historians and poets believe Sardior was slain, and the ruby red dragon's consciousness was shattered and cast far and wide, and that this created the gem dragons. So Sardior is less a god in the pantheon for them, and more of a, like the, the Holy Spirit that imbues them with, with their essence. As an interesting sidebar, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons has gone out of its freaking way to never use a pronoun for Sardior and seems to assign only gender-neutral honorifics like leader and sovereign. In previous editions, Sardior was distinctively male, but whether or not the first dragon could change sex like a kobold, and that's how the true dragons were made, or gender and sexual neutrality are part of dragon lore and creation, 5th edition has definitely made a subtle but definitive stance here about the three creators. One is female, one is male, and one is clearly undefined. You can choose what you want to do with that. I just thought it was really interesting, and no one, as far as I know, has been able to, like, has figured that out and pointed it out online yet, so. Returning to the lore of the first world, though, it's told in many different realms and realities. So there are different versions of the creation myth when it comes to all the different worlds, but it almost always revolves around dragons, especially in Eberron. In the Forgotten Realms, the historical texts loosely imply the dragonkind is not as ancient as the Elegy of the First Dragon World would have us believe, but others think the dragons are like a memory of the power they once held before the first world fell to the mortals. The way that the Forgotten Realms is lined up is that the reason it's called the Forgotten Realms is there are so many different civilizations that have come and gone that the bigger you deep, the more civilizations 
and, and weird old magics and artifacts you're going to find. That's why it's rife for adventure. But it's also why a lot of the stuff is really poorly defined because it's not like there's historical texts through one age of being. It's like the world has risen and fallen dozens of times and empires and civilizations have risen and fallen as well. So the origin of dragons would be a little shrouded in mystery. Regardless, Bahamut and Tiamat are intricately woven into the landscape of various pantheons within the Forgotten Realms. In Greyhawk, history fades to myth quickly. And there was a lot of contradictory uh, stories that I ran across. Although Bahamut and Tiamat appear there as well. But there seems to be some confusion about how Io, who is this massive dragon god like the size of a, of a world, um, it claims to be the true creator. Uh, we don't know how he fits into the story. Sometimes he is the third dragon god. Sometimes he's the father of Bahamut and Tiamat. And sometimes Bahamut and Tiamat are just footnotes in his story. It's very unclear. And again, I think it's designed that way. In Eberron, there are the three progenitor dragons that created the world. But if those texts and interpretations are accurate, then the three dragon gods who are Sybaris, Kyber, and Eberron actually made this world separate from the rest of the multiverse in an effort to escape the other gods. And this may be a second world that was created after the first. In Dragonlance, Bahamut and Tiamat are known by different names, Paladine and Tachesis, respectively, but they are still siblings and children of the High God. They are active in the world of Kryn, which is a Dragonlance world, and the battle for balance always rages to some degree. Famously, Paladine is known for walking the mortal plane of Kryn as Fizban, the seemingly addle-brained but well-meaning wizard. This book, though, confirms that Bahamut is the one to walk as Fizban, and Paladine and Bahamut are one and the same. So you're starting to see how we're getting multiple versions of the same dragon gods kind of passed around with different interpretations of them. One of the most interesting new parts of the lore surrounding dragons in the multiverse is the fact that sometimes dragons can become aware of their counterparts in other realities and realms. This isn't always the case, but some powerful dragons can do that. This is called Dragon Sight. And it's not really understand how it works or why, just that it works sometimes. Gem dragons are most likely to manifest this power, which is on brand gem dragons have always been kind of psionic and psychic. But there are a couple of other tales of other dragons who sensed the existence of their echoes and hunted them down. And after each echo was devoured, the hunter then became more and more powerful. So imagine a red dragon who just is like, wait a minute. There's like six other versions of me. I'm going to kill them all and I will absorb their essence and become bigger and better than every other red dragon. But it's not just dragons that echo across the realms and the campaign settings, although it's usually tied to dragons. Powerful locations and artifacts that have been linked to dragons also manifest. And so do some legendary dragon slayers, although that's more rare. Uh, one of the most famous ones is a Sararak and his lair, the Tomb of Horrors. He has murdered many dragons to ascend to lichdom, and that's why there's a Tomb of Horrors in every campaign setting. On page 42 of Fizzbands, there's a D8 table that gives you different ways to customize a dragon's echo, including aging them differently, changing some physical aspects, or reworking their personality. Earlier in the same chapter, they have other tables that will help a DM make these changes on the fly. The other thing that we get from Fizzbands is a discussion about shapeshifting. Now, 
we have bitched in the past about chromatic dragons not being able to shapeshift. Um, this has been a constant complaint on like 12 episodes. And again here, metallic dragons and gemstone dragons can do it. Chromatic dragons can't. But it says right in the middle of a random paragraph buried in this book that, and I quote, you can give any dragon the change shape action of an adult or ancient dragon without affecting the dragon's challenge rating. There you go. That's all I needed. Thank you very much. My chromatics can now shape change. Fuck you. So I do have to say, though, you got to be careful because it's rumored in this book as well that if a dragon stays in humanoid form for too long, they may not be able to transform back. And a dragon's lifespan is a long, long time to be stuck in the wrong body. So how do you guys feel about this new update to dragons? Let's grab our dice and roll initiative on this. I want to Okay. There's a lot to unpack there, so <laughs> I want to hear your opinions. I got a seven. Oh. Peps? 18. All right, Pepperina, you're up first. How dare oh, man. You. I just choked on air. <laughs> Somebody had to cough, right? <laughs> um, how do I feel about the new updates? I love everything that I read about dragons. So, <laughs> like, there's not... I I love the um, the gym dragons. I did not know the history there. Um, you said gym dragons? Gym. Gem dragons. Cross don't dragons. don't start with me. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first episode together, Terry. Don't start on me. <laughs> um, yeah, I like I like the further going into the um, the history of it and the third kind of dragon that they are giving us information on. Um, I have found, like you said, with the um, how they sort of hid in there that any dragon can do this they've done that a lot in this book where they're like this is how it normally is but you do you i've and i like that that approach to a lot of what i'm reading here one of the things that we're getting more and more in fifth edition is is the idea that there's no hard and fast rule they really want it to be customizable um i feel like that was a mission statement from the very beginning but then they didn't give us enough tools to actually customize things and now they're they're actually doing that appropriately and it feels good reading this yeah. book felt good as a dm um what do you think about the uh the um alternate dimension multiverse kind of dragon um i mean i i feel like that's just the way pop culture is going for us right now is multiverses and things so it feels sort of natural with everything else we've gotten and you know marvel and yeah all of the multiverses that we're getting in all of pop culture right now so it yeah, makes sense to me you know when, when you think of this when you think of D as a business which everything is a business right it's it's supply and demand and the demand mm -hmm. is in pop culture this is what people are attracted to historically over over recent years the multiverse concept has worked very well and so it kind of uh it's a huge sign to wizards that it's going to work very well for them in this sense yeah i i also like the fact that we have some framework to work with now because the problem with dragons being half of the name and a key important part of the game is it was too vague so we can say hey guys you can do anything but remember wizards is trying to bring on newer players these new books are not they are marketed to the existing players but it's also to try and uh, expand the total addressable market of, of this game and so when you have a framework like that it's easier to work within if the if it's a big open meadow of do whatever you like nobody will leave the gate if it's okay do whatever you like but we suggest you stay in this box people go great i know what to do with that 
And so, uh, so I like it for those reasons. I think it also adds in like people play the same game. Like we've all played Curse of Strad. It's all ended differently. I'm in my third Curse of Strad game right now. They've all it's went differently. Modules. So there's, there's, it adds that like in this universe of Curse of Strad, I became the vampire queen of Barovia. And this version of it in this multiverse, we did it completely different. And we released his brother and killed him and brought, you know, ended the curse on the land. Like, but they're both valid. They both happened. So they're both multiverses of each other. Yeah, absolutely. That's how it is. It's no longer the correct way to play D&D. It's your way to play D&D. And everybody's homebrew is equally as valid as the published material. They, it's almost like we complain a lot about how the Forgotten Realms hasn't gotten a spotlight. But it doesn't truly need a spotlight. It just needs to show us what the standard is so that people can deviate off of the standard instead of just floating out there going, whoa, what do I do? Yeah, that's right. Um, I really, really like this. I'm not sure it's something that I'm going to be able to work into every single one of my campaigns. And I don't think most people will. But when you're doing a dragon campaign, this shit will come up, right? When you're doing a properly like focused dragon campaign, um, they very clearly need to completely overhaul the Tyranny of Dragons adventures to include this shit in it. Yeah. Right? And all of the shit from Fizzbands. There's so much in there that Tyranny of Dragons just clearly didn't touch on because it was the first adventure path, right? Like, that's... They didn't know this stuff yet. They need to go back and rework it so the rise of Tiamat lives up to it, right? So... Mm -hmm. um, Do you guys think that all this shit is convoluted and weighty or is it fun and easy to use for for dungeon masters would it be difficult to work it into a campaign as like lore dumps and meta knowledge or is it just is it easily accessible for players and dms i think where we needed specifics we got specifics but where it could be vague there was reasons why it was vague so it the idea that uh, the world has been broken down and rebuilt so many times that we're not entirely sure on the origins of dragons however we do know this this is easy to grasp drop these parts into your campaign don't worry about the rest of it because you're not expected to so that means that most of what we have for new information is fun drag and drop copy and paste things that you can put into your campaign without having to worry about oh god am i going to get caught out because i did i don't know this part of the lore you've essentially been given permission that that's not important and nobody knows that yeah peps do you do you have a an opinion on this one as well you you are almost always a player right so i am yeah i um mostly just dm for my kids and that i i enjoy that because they don't know any of the rules. They, they're not going to rule lawyer me. They're not going to be like, well, actually, in this thing, it did the like. They're just happy to be there. <laughs> so, because um, I don't know all the rules, I've not read all the books and the rules and done all that. So I like nobody that. No, yeah. no, like nobody. <laughs> I I myself have read every page of every book, and I don't know all the rules. Yeah. Right. I think this may have been my first time cracking into the Dungeon Masters uh, book, like go <laughs> doing this research. It's just so, been talking about that wonky table for the past. Three yeah. Days. Well, you know, I try as a as a like forever player. I try not to meta game, so I try not to look into too much stuff. So I'm not like, oh, it's this, you know. 
that's, I, that's where D&D Beyond helps out as opposed mm-hmm. to flipping through books because you can just avoid the bestiary and the, the adventure path and just look at rules and, and character options then. That's the yeah. struggle doing this because as part of, of my job to do this, I need to understand this stuff. But as a player, you want that sense of fresh wonder when you uncover it for the first time. It's the constant. Yeah, it's the, that's it right. You just cram for a test and then forget it all yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> But I like that it sort of it gives you the option. You can't because everybody plays different. Everybody wants to be on different levels. You have your new players who don't know anything or go deep into the lore, and you have your people who've been playing since it started who want that lore. And it sort of gives you that option. You can either say this is what happened, or just give them the sort of cliff notes version of it. Okay, so what we do get with Fizz Bands is we start to get a little more insight into uh, dragon magic, what that means, and how we can drop it into the game. So this idea that dragons are inherently arcane creatures and uh, the magic which is kind of woven through the fabric of the world is stronger and more apparent around dragons. So for that reason, we have a new spell list. We have some ideas for magic items, some horde items, some draconic gifts uh, that you can receive if a dragon dies, for example. Um, So we'll start to roll through this. Let's look at some of the spells. And this is options for DMs for spells that they can include within their game. There's spells for bard, wizard, sorcerer, artificer, ranger. Um, Pretty much everybody's included in this. But I'll start with the lowest level. We'll work our way through. And there's one spell that I want to touch on more than any any others. There's some good names in these as well. So jump in if I say these names wrong. I practice them as best as I can. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) the first spell, let's touch on. uh, Nefer's Mischief. uh, Mischief. Second level, it's an illusion spell. You can do this as an action. It's a range of 60 feet. It's somatic with a material component um, of a piece of crust from an apple pie. I wanted to mention that one specifically. But this is essentially a 20-foot cube that you can see that is filled with fey or dragon magic. And it will produce an effect, a mischievous effect, whether it's that uh, somebody, I believe one of them is like they, they erupted a laughter and it disrupts their turn. Uh, but you can move this cube. You can move it up to 10 feet. Uh, before you roll. You can move it around. Uh, there is Rhyme's Blinding Ice. This is a second level evocation. This is done as an action as well. You cast this on yourself with a with a 30-foot cone. It's somatic and there's a material component of uh, a vial of, of melt water. Is that just melted ice? Is that what melt water is, Adam? You're my go-to person. For these <laughs> melt water specifically is water that has melted, but like not from like your fridge, but from the Arctic. It has to come essentially off of a glacier or Arctic conditions. So you yeah. can get melt water from Antarctica or or the Arctic Circle, um, but you're not gonna you're not gonna make melt water in Texas in July. Right. But the as a side note, these are the material components that I think should become part of your campaign DMs. Like don't hand wave this stuff. That's an interesting material component that can be built into your story. Okay, but essentially, this is a burst of cold energy that comes out as a 30-foot cone. It requires a con save. On a failed save, you will receive 3d8 cold, cold damage, and you're you're hindered in, as an ice formation, I believe, for one minute. So I, I, if I remember rightly, I'll check you. Uh, you can't move, so you're hindered by ice, and your speed is reduced to zero. On a successful save, though, you'll take half as much damage, and you are not frozen by this ice. And you can improve this as you go uh, as you roll at the higher levels as well. A Shardalon Stride. This is a spell, third level transmutation. You can do this as a bonus action, which is interesting. Verbal and somatic. 
It's concentration up to one minute. This will essentially increase your speed, and your speed will increase by 20 feet if, and, uh, and moving doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. You become Quicksilver. And as you move past a creature, that creature will take 1d6 fire damage from the heat of the trail of your speed as you go by. So what I like is I like movement in games. I think it's important. I think it's overlooked. But this is a way of causing more chaos and damage uh, through your movement. And at higher levels, you can increase this, uh, this bonus movement. Raul... Oh, Raulothins? Adam? Raulothins, like... Huh? Rowlathan's. Rowlathan's Psychic Lance. This is a fourth level enchantment, one action, 120 feet, verbal, and you unleash a shimmering lance of psychic power from your forehead uh, at a creature that you can see. It's quite a lot going on with this one. Um, alternatively, you can utter the creature's name. If the name target is within reach, it becomes the spell's target, even if you can't see it. And the target takes an intelligence saving throw. On a failed save, the target will take 7d6 psychic damage and is incapacitated until the start of your next turn. On a successful save, it takes half as much damage. But when you cast this spell at higher levels, so if you use a spell slot at fifth level or higher, the damage will increase by 1d6 for each level above, above fourth. You can summon Draconic Spirit. I love this one. This is a fifth level conjuration. It's an action, 60 feet. This is verbal semantic and it has a material component of an object with the image of the dragon engraved on it worth at least 500 gold pieces. Side note for this one, I was talking earlier about including this in your campaign. This is where you get to snowball the excitement of a dragon campaign, because you will most likely find an image of a dragon worth at least 500 gold pieces in a dragon horde. What does that mean for how the campaign goes for the rest of the dragons, right? You can add these material components in. But concentration up to one hour, you call forth the Draconic Spirit and it will manifest in, in an occupied space that you can see. And when you cast this spell, you can choose a family of dragon, whether it be chromatic, gem, or metallic. And the, the creature resembles a dragon of the chosen family. The creature will disappear when it drops to zero hit points or when the spell ends. And the creature is an ally to you and your companions. I like the idea of having a chromatic dragon ally. In combat, the creature shares your initiative count, but it takes its turn immediately after yours, and it will obey your verbal commands. And there's no action required by you there. I would say whether it falls under your interaction, and uh, and if you don't use any, um, it will take the dodge action automatically. Okay. Fizzban's Platinum Shield. This is a sixth level abjuration spell. Did you, you say, did you say platinum? Is it pl pl platinum? Is it like awesome. is that a British thing like aluminium? What do you say? Platinum. Platinum. It's it. Most people say like it's two syllables. Platinum. No, no, no. We do not. <laughs> Platinum. Platinum. Just really glad I didn't get this section with all these names. Platinum. Platinum. That's yeah. yeah as as if as if it is a freaking Scottish tartan. It's platinum. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll move over. We'll move over that one real quick. Uh, okay, essentially you create a field of silvery light that surrounds you and a surrounds a creature of your choice within range. These new spells are always so hard to remember and try and get it down as cliff notes. Um, this field will shed dim light out to five feet, and while surrounded by the field, a creature will gain the following benefits. There's two of them. Cover. The creature has half cover and damage resistances for ice, cold, fire, lightning, and poison damage. Draconic Transformation. Let's look at this one in a little more detail. Seventh level, Transmutation. This is done as a bonus action. It ranges for yourself. The components are verbal, somatic, and the material component, component is a statuette of a dragon worth at least 500 gold pieces. You see how we can level these encounters up as we go through our dragon campaign? 
It's concentration up to one minute. With a roar, you draw on this dragon magic to transform you and you take on draconic features and you gain benefits for this as well. So you gain blind sight. You have blind sight within a range of 30 feet of you. You can effectively see anything that isn't behind total cover or if you're blinded or in darkness. And moreover, you can see an invisible creature unless the creature successfully hides from you. Yeah, you become daredevil for a moment there. Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. Uh, but you can also get a breath weapon as well. So when you cast this spell as a bonus action uh, on subsequent turns for the duration, you can exhale energy uh, in a 60-foot cone. And each creature in that area must make a deck saving throw or they'll take 68 force damage on a failed save or they take half as much on a successful one. And you can also get wings, uh, incorporeal wings. Okay, incorporeal is another word. I always want to say is incorporeal, but whatever, incorporeal. Uh, wings sprout <laughs> from your back, give you a flying speed of 60 feet. This will be forever. We'll do this. I've been in Canada now for 10 years next year and we'll still, we'll still do this forever. Did you say, did you say 10 years? Because it's years, Terry. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay, but that's it for the spell list that the DMs can add. But we also have uh, magical items that can be added in. So, you know, I mean, it makes sense to drop these in as part of a horde, but in a dragon campaign, there's going to be opportunities to drop these with NPCs. You can kind of put them anywhere. Um, so let's have a roll through some of these. The Amethyst Lodestone, I love this one. This is a wondrous item. It's very rare. It does require attunement. It's a fist-sized chunk of Amethyst, right? It has charges. It has six charges. Those charges will regain 1d6 expended charges daily at dawn. Uh, and there's a few different ways that you can manipulate gravity uh, with this lodestone. So you can have flight. As a bonus action, you can fly for 10 minutes. Nice. Yeah, you can do something called gravitational thrust. As an action, you can focus the gravity around a creature you can see within 60 feet of you. The target makes a DC 18 strength save, or it's pushed up to 20 feet in the direction of your choice. I like this because I like manipulating the position of people, because that means you can use the terrain to your advantage strategically. You know you can push them off ledges or put them into a, a specific space. Reverse gravity, as an action, you can expend up to three charges. The previous two actions were one charge to reverse gravity, and it's a save of DC 18. It doesn't say what kind of save. I imagine strength save. Well, reverse gravity is, is this spell, right? So it tosses you up 100 feet and then knocks you back down again. Yeah, there's a, there are a couple of saves to, to grab onto shit to hold on, right? So um, Next yeah, item, Crystal Blade. I, I, again, I'm a, I'm a forever DM. I don't know what spells are until it, it comes up in a, in a module, right? So um, that's, I don't know. You tell me how it works. You're the players, right? <laughs> Crystal Blade, weapon, obviously. It's rare, but it does require attunement. Um, so this is like a, a, an old-fashioned sort of blade, which is fashioned from a horn or the spine of a, of, a, of a crystal dragon. And when you hit with an attack roll, uh, the target takes an extra 1d8 radiant damage. And the sword has three charges, and it regains 1d3 expended charges daily at dawn. When you hit a creature with an attack roll using the sword, you can expend one of those charges. And you can do that so you can regain a number of hit points, uh, which is equal to the extra radiant damage that the sword deals. And while you're holding the sword, you can use a bonus action to shed bright light in a 30-foot radius. And then so naturally you get dim light for an additional 30 feet um, to cause it to... Um, Sorry, let me just check. I just saw something which I thought. This is just this is just the diet sun sword, right? From Curse of Yeah, it is. But as I remember, what I was just checking there, it seems like the diet sun sword 
but uh, th this item is rare, but I thought I remember the sun sword is also being rare, but I guess they find that they're similar enough that, uh, that that's what you get. I don't, I don't remember. Does that one have a, what was it? A, a, that didn't have three charges that regains and any of that shit. It was just the reason that the sun sword is more powerful is because it's legit sunlight. Fuck you, Strahd, right? Yeah, that's right. But I don't recall the sun sword as having charges, but this one does have charges. So that's right. But they're both rare items. I'm pretty sure. Uh, Dragon hide belt. This is a wondrous item. But um, you can you can use this one as an uncommon item where it gets like a plus one bonus or rare with plus two or very rare with plus three. You can adjust this one a little bit. And this one requires attunement, but only by a monk. It, sorry, it requires attunement by a monk. So this uh, this finely detailed belt, the, the flavor text and the rules is all built around your key points. So monk characters, listen up. So the bonus is determined by the belt's rarity, as I added here. Um, in addition, you can gain, you can use an action to regain key points, which is equal to the role of your martial arts die, and you can't use this action again until, uh, okay. Until All right. Yeah. So your uncommon is you regain one key point and your yeah. very rare is you regain three. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. Dragon Lance. So weapon, it's a Lance or a Pike. It's called a Dragon Lance, right? DMG. Boo. Use... Boo. Dragon Lance. That's what they did. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was like, I don't want to hear the word dragon lance constantly in the campaign. So I'm like, we'll call it dragon pike or something. It'll be totally fine. Dragon, <laughs> dragon extra long spear will be fine. The dragon um, stick. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so different lances of force were used by foot soldiers, pikes, whatever you want to do, uh, or by riders for lances. You gain a three plus bonus to attack and damage rolls made with this magic weapon. And when you hit a dragon specifically with this weapon, the dragon will take an extra 3d6 force damage and any dragon of your choice you can see within 30 feet of you can immediately use its reaction to make a melee attack okay dragon wing bow it's rare it requires attunement um the limb tips of the magic bow are shaped like dragon's wings and this weapon is infused with the essence of chromatic gem or metallic dragon's breath so essentially it can be um uh, inspired by any of these when you hit with an attack roll with the magic bow, you get to use an extra 1d6 of damage at the same type as the breath infused by the bow, so cold, fire, force, lightning, necrotic, whatever. If you load no ammunition into the weapon, it will produce its own. And so it will automatically create one piece of magic ammunition when you pull the string back, and the ammunition created by the bow vanishes the instant that it hits or misses the target. So yeah, if you play a campaign where you're counting arrows, you've got other options. I don't think anybody does when you get to the point that you're using rare magic items, but uh, but there we go. Emerald pen, wondrous item, and it is uncommon. It's very simple. This pen is tipped with an emerald nib and requires no ink to write. While holding this pen, you can cast illusory script at will, requiring no material for the bonus. Okay. This sure. is such a this is such a damn item. Yeah, it's what. I would forget this exists, and then later on, I would be scrambling around for a weapon, and I would try and stab somebody with the pen, and not ever use it for what it's for. Well, it is mightier than the sword, right, Terry? That's right, and I, I might. Well, oh God, that would have been a perfect line. Write that down. Uh, let's okay. go back. Let's rewind. Let's go back. Let's go back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Flail of Tiamat. So this is a weapon, of course. It's legendary. It does require attunement. So this is a magic flail, which is made in the image of Tiamat. It has five like jagged heads, which is shaped like the heads of the five different chromatic dragon heads on Tiamat. You gain a plus three bonus to your attack and your damage rolls. When you hit with an attack, uh, the target will take an extra 5d4 
damage of your choice of one of the following types. So acid, cold, fire, lightning, or poison, which or is pretty, the, pretty the weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And while you're holding the flail, you can use an action and speak the command word to cause the heads to breathe multicolored flames in a 90-foot cone. So that means each creature in the area makes DC 18 deck saving throw. On a failed save, they will take 14d6 of one of the following damage types. You guessed them. Acid, cold, fire, lightning, or poison. And on a successful save, they take half as much, but once this action is used, you can't use it again until the next dawn. Okay, so the Gold Canary is the one that I want to focus on a little bit more because uh, it is very fizz Benny, right? It's kind of uh, it's kind of quirky, but it still fits in with the world. So you can you can change this little uh, Gold Canary figuring into that of a giant canary form or the, that of a giant gold dragon form. So a giant canary form is when the figurine becomes a giant canary and it has an accompanying stat block. And it will stay like this for eight hours, and it can even be ridden as a mount. Once the figurine has become a giant canary, you can't do it again until the next dawn. Or it can become a, enter a gold dragon form. I, I love the fact you get a large-sized freaking yellow bird you can ride as a mount. Right, yeah, I know. Um, and so for while, eight hours, you said? Eight hours is like that. Yeah, that's a long time for a magic item to be active. I know. Let me get the details of this one down because I want this to be clear. So for the gold dragon form, while you're missing half or more of your hit points, you can speak a different command word and the figurine becomes an adult, an adult gold dragon. So half or more hit points must be missing though. The dragon can't use any legendary actions or lair actions. Once the figurine has become an adult dragon, it can't be used again in this way until one year has passed. In either form, the dragon is friendly to you and your companions. This is like once in a campaign, this is going to get you out of some serious shit. Maybe don't blast this as soon as you get it. Like I might be tempted to. Don't blast this spell to get out of the cave where you found it, right? Aladdin style. Uh, wait, so wait until the really, really big bad. Okay, at the end of the duration, the creature reverts into its figurine form. It reverts to, uh, to the figurine early if it drops to zero hit points or if you use an action word to, to, uh, to bring it back to its uh, original position. Okay, I, love the, I, I love the idea of, of a player having this and just using it for the canary mount over and over and over again for like 40 sessions in a row. Right. And then everybody gets totally screwed. The cleric and warlock are face down in the mud. The barbarian is still standing, but, is a, but has fewer than zero hit points. Mm -hmm. And you're just sitting there going, oh God, oh God, oh God. All right, time for my canary. And everyone's like, what? And then you blast out the gold dragon. Right. <laughs> that, that's assuming you remember that it does that because I... Yeah, would definitely forget. <laughs> no, then the pen just Terry in the corner pulling up his emerald pen, stabbing people. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, let's hit the last few items, but I won't go into too many details with these. Okay, so you can get a platinum scarf. Um, you can get a potion of dragon's majesty. There's all these different uh, dragon-like items that could be propped into your campaigns right now. Uh, ruby weave gem, a sapphire buckler. This is a you know like a smaller kind of shield. Um, or you can get a topaz annihilator, which is a weapon as well. Uh, but there's all kinds of interesting items that could be put into these dragon type campaigns where it's just going to be more uh, more in that exploration pillar, which I think is lost. The other interesting thing about these are that you're definitely getting the impression that they are built directly around a specific kind of dragon, right? It is the Topaz Annihilator because we have Topaz dragons, right? It is the Platinum Scarf because Bahamut is the Platinum Dragon, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see that they're definitely theming the different items, not on dragons in general necessarily, but on a specific dragon or dragon type. Yeah, that's right. But these items would be different to the horde magic items. So horde magic items go, comes around this idea that 
hordes inherently are magic, right? The dragons themselves are magic. They're pulling from the weed. So as an item sits within the horde, its magical ability increases over time and it will go through different levels. So the levels are slumbering, stirring, wakened, and ascended. So the longer it stays within that, that horde, the more that its ability is increased and it can take up to one year for it to move on to its next state of power. But I believe, is it one year? Yeah, no, no, that, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, but I believe there's a caveat to this, which is a, um, I believe it's, oh God, let me just check. I think it's if the dragon dies, that that uh, that state of power, uh, the, the length of time that it has to stay in there goes down to only eight hours. So this is like campaign inspiration in itself, because if this is known in the world or known to some people, this creates a sense of urgency, right? If items are becoming more powerful, essentially over the course of a working day, this will create urgency within your campaign and a new uh, campaign arc or a plot hook that you can use for these types of things. So there's a lot of different items that you can use. I want to focus on one in particular, because it's easy to get the concept of how it works, which is the dragon vessel. It's a wondrous item. It's, uh, it's rarity is going to vary depending on the state that it's in, and it will require attunement. So, for example, when this dragon vessel is at the lowest level, that it's slumbering as a bonus action. This if this vessel is empty, you can speak a command word and you can fill it with a limited amount of, of uh, liquid options. Ale, olive oil, potion of healing if you want, potion of climbing, some sort of lower level. And as we go through the different states, we move on to stirring, where it becomes rare, wakened, where it becomes very rare, or ascendant, where it becomes legendary. This will increase in power. So, for example, at stirring, that liquid could be a potion of fire breath or a potion of uh, greater healing. Awakened, it can be a potion of flying or a potion of superior healing. Uh, and then when it gets to the ascendant, which is the legendary stage, um, in addition to the other potions, you can now start to feel it, uh, fill this vessel with like a potion of supreme healing or a potion of dragons, um, potion of dragons majesty, for example. So it's an easy item to get the the concept of the rules down. My my favorite thing about this is when it becomes legendary, it can now hold a whiskey. Like you can tell whoever wrote this really <laughs> loves it. Yeah. Like it says that right in the freaking yeah. text, and I fucking love that. It makes me giggle. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's I'm uh, waiting till it's legendary to steal it. <laughs> the last part I want to touch on is draconic gifts. So this is the idea that once you slay a dragon, you are going to be imbued with some sort of magical ability or some kind of draconic gift as part of that. So that may be that you have a draconic rebirth and you essentially become dragonborn for doing this or that you re receive a frightful presence or that you get some kind of a draconic familiar or psionic reach, you will get some sort of ability or reward for slaying a dragon. In a dragon type campaign, like I've mentioned earlier, that means that each encounter with a dragon can snowball to make the next one more exciting. This is how you uh, essentially, um, you, you create, you, um, in, in, what am I looking for? You uh, intensify your campaign because it's not like, the white dragon encounter is the same as the blue dragon encounter. No, there's more variables now. The uh, the stakes have been uh, have, have risen, and you have uh, gifts and new abilities because of the last one. You know, I I really like this because I'm thinking about all of the different. Look, I've played in a number of campaigns where I've had players who worship Tiamat, and this would be a really cool way to start to imbue a player character to become more and more like Tiamat 
by slaying the five different chromatic dragons and then getting their gift. And the, so there's like, um, I get white scales from the white dragon. I get to breathe poison from the green dragon. I get a frightful presence from the red dragon until you become the living avatar of Tiamat by the end of it. Yeah, exactly that. Now I want to be in that campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when I rewrite Tyranny of, Dra- Tyranny of Dragons and Horde of the Dragon Queen, all of this stuff's going in it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sell it back to Wizards. Okay, Terry, you have one week. Go. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but that's it. That's for uh, that's it. everything I was going to cover with regards to Magic and Dragons. The other thing that's, re- that's really cool, too, with the Draconic Gifts is they uh, you can take them as feats. Yeah. Right? It, every fourth level or whatever, however it works out. Um, instead of you taking your ASI or your regular feat, you could ask your DM for a draconic gift instead. Um, this is probably not the most powerful way to use that level up, but it can be really flavorful for you if you're going after. If you look, if you are a dragonborn with um, a dragonborn uh, dragon or draconic bloodline sorcerer that is crossed over to be a Drake Warden Ranger, to, you're just dragon theming the shit out of it. You might as well dig into this instead of the regular feats, just to feel more epic. Right. Again, not the most mechanically um, uh, powerful way to go about it, but there's some neat shit in there. There really is. So, uh, do you have a particular favorite there? Um, I, I like the idea of the of the draconic gifts as a whole because yes, you can use it. Um, you can use them for feats, but also this is uh, it, it creates urgency, and I think it will keep the players on the path because everybody likes exciting stuff and they know that if they go and complete the next point of the campaign, they're less likely to go wandering off playing fuck about as players do over the side somewhere because they have the urgency of, hey, let's go and do the next dragon because we know that we're going to get something exciting. It's very clear, but it, it's not railroady. It's encouraging them to want to stay on the rails, not forcing them to. I just want to, as a sidebar, say that I think playing fuck about will be the name of Dave's biography. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, grab your dice. I got some questions about this. Yeah, let's go. All right. I got a nine. I got. What is that? It says zero. Oh, it's a ten. The one is scratched out on this. Ah, no, you got a zero. <laughs> you got a zero on your <laughs> d twenty. Um, I got another eighteen. Oh, fuck, of course you did. Uh, Pepperita, <laughs> how do you feel about yes. the platonic spells? Do you think they're overwhelming or underwhelming? Uh, is it enough? Does it live up to the idea of the like a draconic legacy? They try and get them all out, still being clear on what they do, but minimizing <laughs> the text because that'll take four or five minutes. <laughs> um, I I liked them. I think there's a lot of different things in there. I think my favorite one was the one with the piece of apple pie. And reading more into that, it has like the mischievous surge that has. Like, it makes the air smell like pie. And that's the kind of spell that I love. Like, I love um, Tasha's Hideous Laughter. That mm. doesn't do any damage. It just makes you fall over laughing. Because I love, like, I love spells that you can do more with and really make you think creatively on how to use them. They're more flavorful than just damage, right? Yeah. The reason why this is good is because you can use things like that within the exploration pillar in that, yeah, you did a great stealth roll. However, the dragon smells apple pie everywhere that you are. (laughs) And it gives you a reason to like, like you get all those kits and things. And like, I have a couple of characters that have baking kits. Like, when do you ever use that? I'm going to make an apple pie so I can have this component so I can make this spell specifically happen. (laughs) That's so fun. 
Terry, what did you think of the Draconic spells? Was it enough for you? Uh, yeah, it's enough for me. There wasn't anything there where I thought it was like overpowered or weird. That stuff for me is just for it's just for excitement, right? Like I don't get too caught up or like hung up if things seem like they're overpowered or they can't be used right now. I don't see how it's going to fit in. I see all of these things as just drag and drop. Just copy and paste it into your campaign. You I, I get it. Drag and drop. Yeah, that's it. Uh, but <laughs> That's his thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if it's not going to work, just leave it out. Like it isn't. I never get too uh, hung up about it, but I thought they were cool little additions. But, you know, I was more excited by like the, the, the items and the draconic gifts, really, than the spells. Yeah, I thought that, look, I thought the spells were neat. I thought they were fun. A Shardalon's, what was it, the, the fiery wake that he leaves behind him that damages people. Yeah. I love I love him. He was one of my favorite dragons from from the mythos. Um, I don't think we've seen him in fifth edition yet, but I freaking love him. He is just that badass mm-hmm. where every step he takes leaves like magma footprints behind him. So super flavorful, a lot of fun. It inspires me to do that kind of shit with other specific dragons. You'll notice that a lot of the um, items were generic dragon type. But a lot of the spells were specific named dragons. Right. Which was interesting that they kind of made that that difference. Um, perhaps how do you feel about the horde items that, that um, like evolve over time? That I like that. It's um, like when you play a video game and your item levels up with you. I think it sort of adds that that flavor. Um and I always, I always think that like you get a magic item, and it's just, it just does its one thing. I like the idea of it getting stronger, yeah, um, over time. And the you have to like wait a year and come back for it. Like, what if you let your dragon take it, and you're like, I'm gonna come back for this in a year yeah. when it's stronger, you know? You, you kill the dragon, you don't. You only have to come back after eight hours. Yeah, but then you have to kill a dragon, so. Terry, what, what do you think about the Horde items? I love the Horde items. You know, I think this is, uh, I see other uses for this. I see this as a way of being able to put those choices into a game which you think are exciting as a DM, such as swapping weapons out. Adam, you did that to me with the Sun Sword and Glaive, where I will typically go along with these things because I like variety and excitement, but other people don't like having to release their items. But if you have a way where it benefits them, but it still adds variety to your game, like, hey, if you leave this item here, you can go away for a couple of days. When you come back, it will be more powerful, but it lets you have time to play with other elements of the game. I think players will be uh, will be more likely to uh, be open to some variety. Uh, and it gives another level of excitement because you can use that idea of horde items for, for story arcs, right? Other NPCs within the world will want to come and leave things in certain places if it's going to create, make them more powerful. It'll create like a little bit of an arms race. And, uh, and that idea of urgency, that ticking clock is always necessary in campaigns. And this provides another clock that you can play with. Yeah, I like it too. My only stumbling block for these is that I have to, as a dungeon master, telegraph this shit ahead of time. There has to be a legend that they hear about in order for them to understand that this is a horde item. Right. Otherwise, it's just another magic item in the horde. They pick it up, they walk away, and you're like, oh, we missed an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, telegraphing ahead of time is definitely important. So, yeah, when, when it comes to horde-specific items, you... And I wouldn't have more than one at a time, right? In, in yeah. each horde, I would just have the one so that we can focus on this one big epic magical item. So, 
Let's talk about draconic gifts for a second, because we have a world where sorcerers and warlocks are getting imbued and they get magic powers from other beings. Clerics clearly get magic powers from other beings. Tieflings, Janasi, and Asomars all have it like in their blood where they're getting magic from other super powerful magical creatures. And now we have draconic gifts on top of that. There's a lot of ways to get power-ups in 5th edition. Do you like this? Did we need it? Is this important? Or could they have just given out magic items and moved on on this? What do you think, Peps? I mean, getting a magic item, you can always lose that magic item. So getting a gift, it's a little has a little bit more permanence to it. It makes you feel a little bit more special. Um, anybody could find a magic item mm-hmm. laying in a dungeon. They seem to be everywhere. So, <laughs> uh, but you have, you know, I like that you have to be a little special, almost like chosen to get one of these gifts. That That's kind of the difference between this and the others is, uh, you, you feel like you've earned this one. The others just kind of happened mm-hmm. to you, right? Yeah. Terry, how, how do you feel about the kind of gifts? I like the idea of the gifts. I think the gifts are a little powerful. You know, um, to be given out blind sight or frightful presence or a psionic reach, uh, that feels a little bit too powerful for me because lots of times these these elements that you're now giving people are difficult to work around within a campaign anyway. You're trying to create challenge. You're not trying to just make everything available to people. So the idea of a lower level, I wouldn't say a lower level, but a gift which isn't so on the nose, like the draconic familia, for example, is great because they can use that in a variety of different ways Um, but it isn't going to be game-breaking to your campaign necessarily. So what I would do is use the idea of Draconic Gifts, but I would probably just think of some more interesting type gifts where the use case for it is not always obvious. I'm sitting here looking at it right now, and it says here that there's this this rarity table um, where all of the uncommon ones are gifts that you would get from slaying a Wormling. The rare ones are gifts you get from slaying a Young Dragon which means that they should be relatively level appropriate for when right. you get these. Um, but when you look at it from that perspective, there's only a couple of options under each, and there's only one legendary one, which is literally just you gain resistance to a certain type of physical harm. So that's um, And you gain resistance to piercing and slashing damage. That's the big legendary. Like, you you kill an ancient dragon, that's what you get. Yeah. Right? Like, it... It feels a little, like, mechanically, that's pretty damn powerful, but it feels underwhelming just Mm -hmm. at face value. You're right. I would have liked another three pages of these. Mm -hmm. But, again, I'm not... Yeah, I just don't like... I don't like things that are so on the nose, right? So giving out blindsight. Okay, now your human fighter has blindsight, and that's like, okay, fine, whatever. Blindsight, dark vision, however you decide to do it. Uh, It just removes... an an element of excitement for the game because I want it to be still when you get to the point that you are fighting Tiamat, the human fighter still cannot see in that cave. That should be, that should be part of the excitement. Not, don't worry. We got rid of that thing that nobody cares about because I think you should care about that. That's part of the challenge. Yeah. I'm a, I love the idea of the draconic gifts until I read them. I want more. That's all right. Mm -hmm. Like there just, there needs to be, there needs to be more. I really didn't like the idea of the horde items until I read them. I'm like, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. I like this. Cause there's a few different options, but they all grow in interesting ways. Yeah. What I like is it's just a framework, right? It's a concept that you're given. Go nuts, build your own. But here is, here's a framework to work within. If you're completely lost, 
it's it's something to lean into. But but look at the level of dragon that is going to be killed that they're going up against. Look at the level that your players are, and when you're building a gift, make that appropriate. You will throw your whole game completely out of whack if you start giving resistance to piercing and slashing at level three. Yeah. So let's uh, jump really quickly to a commercial. Did you hit record? Yeah, go ahead. So, as some of you have noticed, obviously, Dan and I launched a bit of an informal side project where we go through one of the Dungeons & Dragons publications at a time and determine the pros and cons and our overall thoughts. And the first one we did was Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden. We went over almost every page, covering moderate spoilers for the adventure without giving the ending away. We covered things that interest players or may be useful to Dungeon Masters to get inspiration from. I always love going through the monsters and the items and the player options. I really enjoyed seeing all the different forms of the Frost Maiden and investigating everything about her frosty layer to her maiden head. Dan? What the fuck, man? I need you to take these commercials way more seriously. I show up every time with the utmost professional attitude. Ah! What? You? Professional? Yes. Professional what? Dick? At least I'm not an amateur dick. I don't... What? I... What? What? What is your problem? What's an amateur dick? Well, I don't know. Obviously, by definition, it's a dick that doesn't get paid. Does your dick normally get paid? I mean, it should. Well, I'm not sure that Canada's ready to reintroduce the penny, Adam. Go fuck yourself, Dan. <laughs> it should be getting paid in pounds, if you get what I mean. You can pound pounds. it on your own time. We're trying to record a commercial. Okay, anyway, dick, we're going to periodically continue working our way through new releases as they come. Gross. As well as discussing some of the published material from Wizards of the Coast that has already hit the shelves. There's a lot of info out there for 5th edition, but not every DM or player knows which book to pick up next or what to expect from an adventure module. After all, there's some great additions to the library, and then there's, well, Rick and Morty versus D&D. This series is going to be sporadic and unscheduled, so keep your eyes out for these and let us know if you agree with our assessments. We hope that you'll be able to use the series as a guideline for which books deserve your attention for your own personal needs as a D&D player, but keep in mind that they're going to be full of moderate spoilers for the adventures, and they aren't meant to tear into specific mechanics or stat blocks. As we go on, you'll be able to find previous Legend Lore episodes in a playlist on our YouTube channel, or check out the episode guide to see what books we've already covered by looking at the post on r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. Now... Let's get back to the episode, shall we? Fuck, one of these days we're going to record a normal fucking commercial. I highly doubt it. Well, whose fault is that? Mostly yours. Disagree. On page 63, it gives us the idea that dragon slayers are not only magically affected by the dragon itself, but oftentimes the dragon will choose an area that already has magic running through it. We are given a detailed table of various effects that could be in the area. I think this is a great way to throw off your party, especially of experienced players. They may recognize the typical regional effects of a dragon, but if you throw a random wild magic zone at them, they're not going to know what's happening. That's also my favorite effect given on the table. Any spell or magic item activated in the area has to roll a d10, and on a 1 has to roll from the wild magic table. I think that adds a good amount of chaos into the adventure and keeps the party on their toes. It makes it feel more imbued with magic, too. That's what we're mm-hmm. really getting out of this book, is dragons are magic, don't fucking forget it. Yeah, that's, it's magic, 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 and this is why. 
<laughs> and how to use it. Yeah. All right. So I um, personally love the thought of the area being affected, not because of the presence of the dragon, but because of the emotional connection the dragon has with the home it has created there which is why it takes about a century or so of time for regional effects to really take place. However, it does stay on page 65 in the Age and Dragons layer sidebar that you can add regional effects to a younger dragon's area. It specifically states that if you do so, then you should adjust the CR rating of the younger dragon, but you don't need to do so with an older dragon. It's already factored in. It's because the regional effects are mundane enough that you're not going to have a difference between uh, mm -hmm. CR 18 and 19, but yeah. it, may, it may swing it enough between a CR 9 and 10, right? Right. Um, and regional effects are not the same as layer actions. They're two very different things. Um, so you don't need to really adjust them. You can just add as many as you, as you want. Yeah. So they give us um, seven different kinds of regional effects. But before that, there's a quote from Fisben that I really liked. I think it really sort of makes you think on what you can add to it. And it's, my favorite lair I've ever visited was a crystal dragons. It turned everyone's voice into a high-pitched squeak. Remember, not all lair shenanigans are devastating. So that to me is like, I know they're dragons and they're big and scary, but you can have fun with them. I also like the idea of you handing out helium balloons to all the players as soon as Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. Here's how we're going to role play today. <laughs> so like I said, this, they give you seven um, different kinds of regional effects, and there's three examples in each. Um, I've just noted my favorite ones of each of them. So first they give you uh, terrain changes. I like the exposing terrain. Uh, creatures have disadvantage on stealth checks, and the terrain within six miles works against anything trying to hide in it. Branches will move, leaves will change colors, fog will clear, and so on. So the terrain itself is giving you away. Your rogue's not gonna be able to hide. That is so frustrating, but a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, then there's weather changes, which this is the only one that has two examples instead of three of the seven different kinds. Okay, yeah. Uh, I like the pleasant weather. Within six miles, it's always sunny and nice. It only rains at night and it's perfect during the day. So your warning is that everything's fine. Like that's how you know <laughs> you're near a dragon. Nobody's ever, like nobody questions the weather. They're not gonna really pick up on that. It'll be a nice sly. You you have to be careful how you do this one, right? Like this is uh, absence of the normal, presence of the abnormal, right? But the people around that know, if some people know there's a dragon around, they need to be reacting to this properly. Like if suddenly mm -hmm. everybody goes indoors when it's beautiful outside, that should, you know, that should be a, a, an issue of concern. Yeah. Um, then we have water changes. Uh, there's beguiling water, which is when a creature drinks from a stream or lake within one mile of the lair. They must make a wisdom save or they are charmed for 24 hours. If they save, they are immune to this effect for 24 hours. So this is a nice way to like get a, um, like a mole into your group. If like one or two players fail that save, then they've got that dragon like in their ear. Then we have changes to creatures. Pervasive influence is where people who live within 12 miles of the lair take on personality traits of the dragon. Everyone manifests these. He just got Carrie's attention. He just, he just sat right up. Oh. <laughs> I love it. Um, 
everyone manifests these in different ways and to different degrees. If the dragon dies, it takes 1d10 days for the traits to fade. I also have a shout out to Draconic Tint here, which is creatures within six miles um, just start to turn the color of that dragon. I'm sorry, Draconic what? Tint. Okay, moving along. <laughs> like camping? You said tent? Tint. Tint. Color. <laughs> then we have Planar Connection. Uh, I've chosen Planar Portals. Portals can be found within one mile that lead to an elemental plane connected to the dragon. If your parent, your party's not like looking for these, they accidentally walk into like the plane of fire. Uh, look, that can they be a lot of fun, but upon it. can derail a campaign pretty. Mm -hmm. hard. I might use it as demi planes or as uh, like pockets of the elemental plane. Um, not just have them go loose in the elemental plane. Or you know, you get into the plane of fire. <laughs> You get into the plane of fire, but you are there's a single mountain and just a sea of lava all the way around you. Right. Yeah. You're on the mountain. There's adventure to be had here for a session and then back through the portal, right? Back back yeah. on the I'm thinking like Mario, down the pipe and out the pipe. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've got two more. There's dragon magic. Uh there's a death warning. The dragon senses any death within one mile and can see the last moments of that creature through its eyes. So if your party's going in and just starting to kill things around the dragon, it's going to know, it's going to know who you are, it's going to know what you're using, how you fight. That's that's really cool, especially for the green and black dragons, which are manipulative, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something else that needs to be uh, telegraphed as well. And this one is probably my favorite one. It's uh, Cosmic Alterations, and it's Starry Scene. The stars above the layer twist and form into scenes of the dragon's dreams. So, you, I mean, your party goes to camp for the night, and somebody's on watch, and all of a sudden the stars start to twist above the mountain over there and play out a dragon's dreams. What do dragons even dream about? And you just probably, see, like, probably just hoarding it up, right? Yeah, <laughs> you just see like stars turning into like a picture show in a movie. It's he see a picture of Tiamat showing up for her first day of school and she forgot to wear pants that day. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> copper, dra copper dragon, the stars just turn into a giant dick. Just <laughs> All right. So then um we have some layer actions. This passage sort of lets us know not to feel limited to the layer actions in the monster manual. And to check out chapter five, where they lay out actions specific to types of dragons. But it does give four additional layer actions you can use with any dragon. These include rolling to recharge the breath weapon, regaining HP based on amount of hit dice, a lingering breath, which deals additional damage to any creature who took breath weapon damage as it takes time to clear the area, which that one's that one's probably my favorite. Because um, yeah. if you're hit with dragon's fire, it's going to take a minute for that fire to go out. You're going to have to stop, drop, and roll or continue to take damage from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's the magic scales, which gives the dragon resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage for a time. Okay. I, I freaking love it. It's the lingering breath for me. I always mm -hmm. wish especially green dragons and black dragons, um, and to a lesser degree, white dragons. Like, mm -hmm. fire, yay. Lightning is kind of, it's there and then it isn't. 
yeah. the ammonia, right? But like that's the, or the ammonia, Jesus. The ionization in the air, right? So fuck. I'm sorry, chemists that listen to this. I don't. I don't <laughs> think chemists listen to a podcast. There might be one. You know. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So, um, no, I, I really, I really like the, um, the idea of this lingering breath weapon, but it gets, it, it, it gets a little bit fucky when you start to think about the metallic dragons that do this too, because they have like repulsion breath and slow breath and stuff too. And as much as like, oh, it's an extra 3d6 damage of that type, uh, maybe the effect just lingers longer or you've got to, mm-hmm. you have to make another save next round of an easier DC as it slowly dissipates shit like that so i don't know there's a lot to think about with that i love these options for layer actions let's grab dice i I want to roll initiative 19 peps 15 i got a five have you rolled single digits yet Fabrina? no all right so (laughs) i need to put this dice into my rotation (laughs) uh terry yeah good updates to the layers and regional effects um, like, are the, do they stack up to the monster manual? Do you think? Yeah, I love it. I love it anytime there's more options or flavor or permissions in which you can get more creative. I think you just have to be careful how you're telegraphing this out to the players. You have to be fair with it. Anything which is going, it's which is going against what they might be used to, or it seems to be working against them. Telegraphing it ahead of time with clues um, is just is just being fair play it's i don't believe that it would be you step over the threshold of the six miles or the 12 miles and suddenly everything changes you would see evidence of that change leading up to it but then whatever effect is taking place uh, will start after that threshold Uh, but so while you're being creative dms and putting this into your game you just need to be conscious on how to be fair with it it should never be oh what the hell is happening it should always be oh that's happening like, and as long as you're putting it across that way, uh, the players will lean into it. Yeah, I also don't mind players using their reaction to get the fuck away from a lot of this stuff as well. Yeah. If you're going to, at at the end of the round, so layer actions always come in at initiative count 20, right? When you hit initiative count zero, anybody that hasn't used a reaction maybe gets kind of a hint about what layer action is coming. Right. Right. Yeah, I, would, I would get to use their reaction to mitigate it somehow. You know, there's an extra level of mechanical nonsense, but I don't mind that. There's a lot of layer actions. You think there's the three that come standard in the monster manual, the two or three in each section later in this book per dragon, and then the four listed here. That's at least nine options. So I, I would only pick three or four to ever use at a time, but then like, and we haven't even touched on regional effects. Like that's a lot of shit to have to manage as players. Yeah. So make it yeah and i would do it as um it should be adding to the puzzle not fucking people over so for example if you're i don't know fighting a red dragon on a bridge and there's the lingering breath the lingering breath would go in the area beneath you so you you describe it with flavor text as what's happening where it's apparent to the player oh this environment in this part of the map has changed and so if i go there there's going to be consequences to it uh, and then that way it's increasing excitement not increasing frustration except for the barbarian just burn that motherfucker now just fuck that guy yeah he's playing the game <laughs> in easy mode anyway so <laughs> uh pepperina did you like these as as updates to what dragons can do with their layers and regional effects um i have not super read into what it was before um you have not studied every one of our dragons. i have not you know what actually most of what i what i knew about dragons came from you guys (laughs) oh i'm sorry (laughs) 
<laughs> like like learning learning about dragons was mostly from you guys. <laughs> I, I'm I'm flattered. This was not a paid promotion. I want you. It to... was not. Um, because I started listening to you guys when I started really getting into D and D. So that's like where I learned a lot of things. Um, that's probably why I'm such a chaotic player. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. <laughs> um but i do really enjoy them i think they add a lot of flavor i think they're not all just to fuck over your players some of them just add some fun to it which i enjoy mm -hmm. like the the starry scenes and the just creatures starting to turn blue you know when you're around a blue dragon's lair yeah as i would play that as maybe they haven't realized that that's happening to them yet so they're yeah. completely oblivious it's just normal like it's an ancient blue dragon so everything's always been blue and they just think that's what they're supposed to be yeah. and then like blue. walk into the gnome and like encampment there and you just find fucking smurfs everywhere yeah, yeah. That's normal. Mm -hmm. and your players aren't blue and all of a sudden it's like what what's wrong with you why aren't you guys you know i gotta say i think the regional effects are freaking amazing there's all sorts of fun stuff in there again i wouldn't stack these i would choose two or three that way every dragon mm -hmm. feels a little bit different and a little bit unique so pick the two or three that really exemplify what you're trying to get across with your dragon yeah. um but and and i like the idea of putting it on a young dragon as well i would even have like these little regional effects directly affect what's in the the layer of a wormling wormlings don't get layers but they have their favorite little home they've got mm -hmm. the back closet they live in and in the back closet there's always thunder right like that's not going to change the CR of, of this battle, but it adds a special kind of draconic magical flavor to it. I like the idea of it being very localized, the smaller or the younger the dragon gets. Um, how do you guys feel about adding these ideas to some of the draconic creatures that aren't dragons, but are draconic adjacent, like wyverns and hydras and draculiches and all that shit? Terry, you think you rolled highest? Yeah, I would do it on a minimal minimalist scale, though. You know, um, perhaps like a, a white drake, the room would be noticeably colder. You know, something like that. Like where it's probably more flavor text and is just to expand on the exploration pillar and uh, and immerse the players into the world more than, than is going to have a mechanical effect. Yeah, you're not a full dragon, so you don't get the full dragon magic yeah no, right. perhaps would would you do that um i would look into how long it's been in that area and its connection to it because it does heavily state that these things happen because the dragon is so connected to its home so for me it would depend on the type how long it's been there um how connected it is and then it's sort of that magic sort of seeps out of it into into the area. As a general rule for me, I wouldn't add it. I, I do want there to be a distinctive difference between a dragon and everything else. Um, I may have regional impacts. If a hydra moves in, there's going to be fewer creatures around because they all got eaten, right? If it's going to be um, a bunch of wyverns, there's not going to be a whole lot of creatures that, uh, that are flying because wyverns have the air supremacy in the area right um and maybe there's just more like pools of poison because they're toxin based and they're defouling the the area but it's because of their direct intervention it's not like magic is imbuing shit 
Um, I will say the exception to this rule is going to be Shadow Dragons. Keep giving them more dragon shit. They're still dragons. I think Dracoliches should have lair actions, but I think both liches and dragons do anyway. So I would have no problem adding shit onto that. And Dragon Turtles already get regional effects and lair actions. They should they should get this kind of shit too. I think that's like the lingering breath makes sense. The weather patterns changing around a dragon turtle makes sense. So those are the ones that I see are probably the most likely to have that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Draconomicon section of the Fizzbands book, there's a whole list of like, these are all the dragons and the layer and regional and personality shit that goes all the way through. And then those would be the ones that I would make sure that this is applied to and everything else that's not listed there. I probably wouldn't. I'd probably just kind of leave it alone. Um, but I could make a, I could make a strong argument for a ghost or dragon, which is an entry in this book that doesn't have layer mm-hmm. actions. So, um, is there anything missing from this section, you guys? Did you feel like it was a little light on layers? I didn't feel like it was light. I, I felt like it was uh, inspirational enough. You know, it's like I, I kind of said a few minutes ago, is I always just look for direction on things. I'm, the whole point of these books for me is to stop newer DMs or uninspired DMs from not being able to take action or not understanding what they can take action on. And these few inspirations that we get here, um, I think they outline how mechanically heavy to make something, how intense to make something. And then they provide enough inspiration that you can maybe go away and adjust some things yourself. Yeah. Perhaps how did you feel about this? Um, I, I like what they gave us and it's, you know, four different things that are pretty generic. Um, but it does also state like, go to this chapter, look at these things for your specific dragons and, it sort of encourages you to think outside the box and come up with your own also in a way. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it gives you, it gives you a decent four um, that you can definitely add to anything. If you think your dragons may be lacking something. I think the one thing that I was missing most of all here is in the regional effects. If you've got a cult that worships the dragon or kobolds that worship the dragon, henchmen or minions, they should have specific differences to them and i don't just mean it's a blue dragon so it's blue kobolds or it's a blue dragon so they have wands of lightning bolt because they're cultists that, that's not what i mean i mean like the green dragon's amphibious so the kobolds can breathe underwater too because they they're on the 19th generation of kobold worshiping these guys this guy right so that kind of thing i would i was hoping for a little bit more of i'm gonna try to apply some of these regional effects we do have that little section changes to creatures i would Mm -hmm. really expand that to changes to allies as well right yeah so inside every layer is a horde yes Uh, you are now our hoarding expert i mean i do I do have my own horde of dragons, so that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, so my understanding of the dragon hordes and how they're magical is that dragons are basically oozing magic that is spread over the material plane. Gross. The collection of material items helps them charge this magic. So when it comes to a dragon horde, size matters. As a wormling, dragons start their horde as soon as they can fly. From the age of wormling to young dragon, which is about five years, they will have collected a few hundred gold pieces worth of treasure. If they share a layer... Hold on, hold on. I gotta back up. I'm gonna tell you right now that I'm changing the name of this episode. 
to, when it comes to the size of when it comes to hordes, size matters. Size matters. matters. <laughs> I'm doing that right now. Okay, so from the age of wormling to young dragon, which is about five years, they will have collected a few hundred gold pieces worth of treasure. If they share a lair with other dragons, they will hide their treasure in a separate safe place close to where it sleeps. For young dragons, this is when they leave the nest and start to look for their own lair. At this point, their hard cord starts to grow to a few thousand gold pieces and will all be in one central location close to where they sleep. Regional and layer effects don't typically form just yet, but as the connection with their layer grows, these powers can start to form. If you have a young dragon who is maybe destined to be more powerful or perhaps has just collected an unusually large horde for their age, adding one or two scaled back regional effects could be fun. So I like that it sort of states that um, what if your young dragon or your dragon inherits a horde from its parent and they have a crazy amount? then their regional effects would definitely be more powerful than your average dragon who's just leaving the nest and starting out on their own. Trust fund. Yeah. Those are the trust fund babies of dragons. This is a red dragon baby for sure. (laughs) Um, For adult dragons, for a dragon to transition into adulthood, they must complete two things. Live for a century and have 15,000 gold pieces in their hoard. That sort of got me thinking, what if they get robbed at 99 and they don't have 15,000 gold pieces when they turn 100? They don't become adult dragons. That right there is why you're dealing with a rampaging young dragon that has some power to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, the dragon horde, lair, and region are so tangled together in magic and power that we see more regional effects and lair actions really take place. Most dragons of this age and wealth will choose to spread their hordes over several caches, partially to lessen the chance of its entire horde being stolen all at once, and partially to further grow its power over an area. Even if the dragon isn't present, its regional effect will still take effect around all of their caches. Typically, they will leave about 15,000 gold pieces in each cache and gain six to eight of those in their adulthood. And with ancient dragons, by about 800 years of age, dragons will have gathered around 8 to 10 of these caches with 200,000 gold pieces per cache, giving them ancient status. As years go on, they will continue to grow in both numbers of cache and amount they keep in each. I absolutely love the idea of these multiple layers with multiple hordes, Mm -hmm. right? It adds an extra level to your to your treasure hunt as well. It's like, oh, hey, we know that this ancient dragon, we're level 18. We know the ancient dragon has this one MacGuffin we're looking for in his horde. You get there and you're like, sorry, guys, wrong horde. Your, your MacGuffin's in another castle, mm-hmm. right? And you've got to figure out which one of these hordes to, to go around. Your guys, look, honestly, the D&D players are going to run around and just fuck with every horde they can think of. But mm-hmm. it, it's fun to have, like, they get to the right horde they get up to the item, the dragon picks it up and flies away and drops it in another horde, right? You can really make this an epic quest to get this this item. And how about the intensity that this provides with the knock-on effect of messing with each one of these caches? 
like if the dragon senses um, something happening within one of the caches or it's been polluted or, or affected in some way, is that dragon coming after you or are they just going to decimate the nearest city because you're fucking around? And so whatever is going to be the quickest way. And now what does that mean for the people? Are they backing you now? Do they think that you should keep interfering with this dragon's horde? Like there's knock on effects here, which is going to make your campaign much more interesting. So to strengthen the mythical connection and to claim ownership over each of these caches, dragons will often leave linked items at each one. This helps them to unify the multiple locations into one collective horde. This also creates possible quests for your adventurers. There should be clues left to indicate how many items are in the set after one or two pieces are found. They do give you a detailed table of possible things that could be in the set items. Hold on, I wanna roll on it. What does a four get me? Uh, it says here, statuettes depicting different kinds of dragons. So there would be different statuettes, one in each horde with a different kind of dragon. And remember why statuettes are useful, right? We just talked about it a few minutes ago. Yeah, no, that's fun. That was funny, so, Peps, going like, what's the option? You're like, fuck off. <laughs> what are the options? Not in my prep. That's what the options are. Not look in the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... It's believed that removing a significant amount of treasure from these caches will weaken the dragon itself and also the connection they have to the land around it. To cleanse an area of the dragon's effects, the players may not need to actually kill the dragon, but instead clear out these caches. However, they will need to do so quickly. A dragon will definitely know if their horde's being messed with, and it's only a matter of time before they head that way. If a layer has less than 10,000 gold pieces, it is no longer considered part of the dragon's horde. This suggests that you could potentially strip an adult or ancient dragon of legendary status, but doing so would probably mean first magically binding the dragon to prevent it from stopping you. There's enough planar shift nonsense as well out there that you could... In theory, open up a portal, toss a butt, like in the middle of their horde, toss some shit through, close the portal and run. Mm -hmm. They're not going to sense the horde on you. So then you're able to go do this again. You do it enough times to enough of these different layers. You can depower a dragon pretty significantly. Yeah, yeah, you could take away their layer effects. You could take away any of their legendary actions just by taking this, away their gold and their treasure. This right here is why, how you get a level eight party to go into an ancient dragon layer. When you know it's not there, but his minions and the traps and the lair effects are. Right. right. And and then they are depowering the layers and they'll benefit from this in a year of game like later, right? Of games later. So um because they're they're affecting the world. Yeah. And then, you know, at that point, like you so said, does does the town around it start to cheer you on? Like, cause you're you're taking away all of those regional effects from that area that Yeah, you'd be local heroes, but you'd be like, guys. Shut up. The dragon will hear. <laughs> yeah, I need you to keep this very quiet, guys. It depends who they're most afraid of. That's what it's going to come down to. You doing something in the short term uh, may not help the people in the long term. They're going to be abundantly aware of that. Yeah. Uh, so then we have horde quirks. Uh, we know now that dragons basically seep magic into anything they're connected to or spend a good amount of time with. That magic doesn't just vanish 
with the dragon's death. Horde quirks are a fun way to add in consequences to stealing a dragon's hoard even after they are dead. We are given a variety of regional effects like altering water or weather, attracting animals, causing dreams. Uh, my favorite is the seek return where a sentient item your player took wants to be returned to the horde and will purposely get your players turned around. I could really see this happening with a brass dragon's hoard as it's mostly sentient items that it collects to talk to and be friends with. I like it wants to get back to its other sentient item friends. Like mm -hmm. I I don't like you player, please return me to my friends. I'm yeah. going to purposely fuck with you and get There's you lost. Of fun you could have with that. That'd be great. Yeah. Like you, you have you have the silver knife that you take and it just wants to get back to the rest of the cutlery set. That... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I would like to return to my family, please. Can we um, we are also given the option of having a haunted horde and a cursed horde. Both come with a d6 table to help pick an effect from. With the additional ghost dragons in this book, you could have a lot of fun playing around with these features. But players, don't fear, we are also given a d4 table of how to break the horde curse. Uh. <laughs> Um, then we're given a section about competition for a horde. The amount of power a dragon's horde exudes, your players will not be the only ones looking for it. There's going to be cults out there. There's going to be other religious groups. Right? Yeah, other adventurers, religious groups, like trying to get these powers for their thing. Um, on page 69, it gives us a D6 table of things the power of a horde could be used for if another group gets to it first that's also going to give me plot hooks it's like mm -hmm. if an npc wants you to go get this item they're going to do it for one of these motivations as well so then we get into creating a horde page 70 gives us a breakdown of what kinds of things might be included in a horde and lets you know where at in the player's handbook and dungeon master's guide you can look to help flesh out your horde along with tables on the following page. We are given more reasoning on why dragons might have the things they have. For instance, having different kinds of gold coins from different times and regions since the adult or ancient dragon will have been collecting for hundreds of years by this point. Uh, we are given a D10 table to help determine where a section of coins may be from. They explain that the horde should have a mix of mundane objects, gems and art objects and magic items. The tables on the following page will help determine the value of each of these categories based on the age of your dragon. So when you're building a horde, you're just rolling on a on a different table, on all these different tables over and over and over again until yes. you meet the basic requirement, right? It's a lot of rolling dice. <laughs> uh, so I've put together an adult blue dragon horde based sure. on these tables. Um, and I will walk you guys through how that long did it process. Take to, how, how long did it take to do it? Probably, I mean, I'd say maybe an hour. Wow, but that, that was, was, I mean, I've never built any horde or anything. I've really? never looked in the Dungeon Master guide. So a lot of it was new to me. If you are an experienced DM, it's not going to take you that long. Yeah, so that's one hour in your first ever time, right? So, yeah. you know, it's, you know, the point is these are real quick and easy tools to use where it might only take you 20 minutes if you're experienced in doing this, right? So. Yeah. yeah. 
So for the adult blue dragon, it gives you that you should have 4,200 copper pieces, 14,000 silver pieces, 28,000 gold pieces, 3,500 platinum pieces, 7 mundane items, 21 gems, 10 art objects, and 4 magic items. That's a lot of rolling. The the 1d8, and those are averages, right? Like uh, the 7 mundane items is really 2d6. You could end up with 12. So you yeah. got to go get 12 mundane items to litter into that horse. This is why it takes you so long. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're rolling those dice and then you're flipping and remember every time like oh i gotta do it 12 times it's not just picking off the list it isn't rolling on a d100 table 12 times and writing yeah yeah okay that's why it's time consuming it's not complicated it's not complicated it's just a lot of rolling looking writing okay rolling looking writing and you have to kind of look at two different books because it gives you in this book the value of the objects based on the age of the dragon and then you have to go look in the dungeon master guide to roll what on the, their tables the actually are within yes. the price. Yeah. Um, yeah yeah so it's a lot of flipping back and forth um for the mundane objects they are in this book on that next page that's the d100 table that i used um I got an hourglass filled with sparkling sand, a stuffed monstrosity appropriate to the terrain, so something in a desert because it's for a blue dragon. Sure. A drum for use in religious rites where with a foreboding echo to its beat, a large noisy wind chime, a crude flute with a pleasant sound, an extensive historical record in the form of a carefully knotted string, a tarnished brazier with a pleasant smelling ash so yeah. some of these are just kind of quirky you know what this is you, you say this your player writes it all down they tuck it away oh it goes in the bag of holding they never think about it again until they're cash poor and need to buy a boat for level uh-huh. then they whip it on like what is there's something about a brass a, a good smelling bra with with ash in it what is this right like yeah that that's what these mundane items are for me i really want to hand select them to mean something different for each one of the players if you're going to have something oh it's got ash in it it smells good make it a proper sensor that will help doing cleric rituals to reduce it by a minute right that's not it's not quite mundane but it's not mm-hmm. enough to be like oh shit this changes everything it's mundane enough and your cleric will not forget they have it and they're not yeah. going to want to sell it and now there's a little bit more to this board right you could even like make them sort of roundabout spell components you know like maybe Mm -hmm. there's a spell your cleric uses that has to have ash in it and now they have something that came with it now you're speaking terry's language yeah that's and you know just keep note of it as the dm what they get you don't need an answer for it right away like adam said they're going to stuff it in their bag of holding let them do that you've got a couple of weeks to go and figure out how to use one or two of these or build it into the campaign and then uh and then it's it's exciting for them later on when they have that eureka moment of they remember that they have this particular thing uh, you don't need all the answers right away. Yeah. So for the rest of these things, you roll on these tables, they give you a value, then you go to the Dungeon Master Guide and you look up and roll what they actually are. I want to ask you guys right now, just because we're talking about hordes and we so rarely talk about treasure properly on the podcast, art objects. If you are, if it's an ancient dragon horde and you're getting 2d10 art objects, do you guys give a shit about art objects? This is worth 13,500 gold pieces 
It's a little ivory statuette of what could be a small human or a halfling who's playing with the squirrel and seems to be appear looking upwards with a content look on its face. Who gives a shit? Who cares? Like, I, I like that level of detail, but like yeah. do you as players give a shit. I think what I've learned is it's not about whether or not I give a shit as the player. It's who in the world gives a shit about that, right? Mm -hmm. This is important to someone, some community, some people, or has some purpose, and that should be brought into the campaign later. You know, um, particularly with art objects, right? This uh, it's like in real life. There's certain things that I do not give a shit about, but other people do. And so, once you figure out who it's important to and why, then you can use it in your campaign. Yeah, that's, that's true. As a as a DM, you could make it like in this town, this item was stolen, and it's a family heirloom, and they'd really like it back. And it doesn't do anything. It's just sentimental. Well, yeah, and the other thing that I've done quite recently, actually, is because I roll on the random tables all the time. Uh, I'm very selective about which table I roll on, but I, I do roll on them. And recently, um, I'm playing a solo campaign with Mieka right now, and she is lost out in the middle of the desert, and there's just, like, death and destruction all around her. All around her. And she ran across a small box full of six little wooden carved figurines it's all the dmg gave me but then i flavored them all to be a family of dragonborn and it's clearly a family of dragonborn and one of them has got the, the uh, one of the children's got the eyes crossed out on it and then uh it it says hopefully we'll get this back to, to whoever and there's a little note in it and it created this whole storyline she's never going to meet these dragonborn but it's this tragic story of a family that lost at least one kid and is probably dead in the desert somewhere and it gave her this kind of sense of hopelessness it was more about a theme and an overall feeling than it was a magic item for plot and mechanics right right 100 yeah and she sat there and went, oh, that's sad. But she remembers it now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it's not a memorable piece of art, why are you including it? I, yeah. And I guess that's true in the real world too, right? Like we remember the Mona Lisa. We remember Michelangelo's David, right? Like we remember these things. There's lots of art out there that I have seen that I do not remember. Right. And therefore, is it an expensive, important piece of artwork? Maybe, maybe it should be less about the dollar value and more about how it's memorable and why. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it, what, does it, what does it suggest? Are you learning yeah. anything from it? Yeah. There's a conversation I was not expecting to have today. In a <laughs> uh, but like it, as a hoard item, the dollar amount counts because it does. Yeah. Yeah, it's you're right. very much, you have to have this much amount of gold pieces or things valuing this amount now, to does move that on include, to the next stage. Does that include inflation and exchange rates or how, how are we doing this? I don't I don't know. <laughs> Do you think, I think, it's not in a book. Don't go look. It's not in a book. It's not in there. I didn't read it. <laughs> I think they, there's a lesson that there's something I kind of follow generally in life for the people. It's like the people you surround yourself with. And it's, it's uh, if, you're, if you're not teaching me something, making me money or making me laugh, why are we talking or why are we here? And I think this goes for items in D&D, in &D, right? If you're not teaching me something, making me laugh or making me money, why are you in my game? And I think yeah. this is the, the perfect example for, for art. Fair enough. But I mean, but, also, your players don't have to take it. Like, they can just be like, eh, I'm going to leave that there. I, I would recommend that some of these items in the hoard should be nigh impossible to take. Like, 42,000 gold pieces. Or mm -hmm. there's a beautiful 
um, sculpture that was originally the figurehead at the front of a ship, and it weighs 43 tons. There's right. no way that you're going to move this thing, right? So, But if you get into the, dist- like, taking away the value of the horde to lessen the dragon if you have something that you can't get out of there but is worth a lot could your party just destroy it and then it's not worth that 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. although you may you may end up doing yourself a disservice like you think about the venus de milo which is famous because she has broken arms Mm -hmm. right and if you think about the fact that your adventuring party goes in and totally fucks up the dragon's horde and just like smashes a bunch of shit and then leaves and kills the lich and wipes out two beholders and saves the realm. The dragon can turn around and be like, see this here? See this broken marble pillar? These guys broke it. I'll sell it to you for 95,000 gold pieces. Yes. Right? Yeah. So like your celebrity could work against you. Yeah. I also like what another, I know we have to move on, but um... <laughs> When I imagine what all of these characters look like, if you think about the items and the weapons and the, the their clothing and stuff that they get from different places, every single adventurer should look like they've been round ass kicked through a value village. Like they've got shit from everywhere all over them, but they'll stick to it. So that dragon cloak that has the symbol of the black dragon on it in the cave that they found, they are going to wear. And mm-hmm. for me, it's like, how does that impact you when you get to the next town and you're covered in these symbols? These are the things that they don't think about, but no. they will. But I think include that into your game. If you insist on carrying this painting with you everywhere you go, what does that say about you and how are people going to react to you? Because one thing I've learned about players is they will never get rid of the item. They will stick fast. They will insist on carrying this cloak everywhere, even though it's a detriment to them. And so it's like a life lesson, really, some of these items. <laughs> It's even even like with cursed items, they will just unattune from it and stick it in the bag of holding and keep it. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of it. So for the gyms, um, there's 21 of them. So I did not roll 21 times and then go look at them. Um, is- I rolled three times and put them in groups of seven. Uh, I, I'll tell you this. As a dungeon master, if I'm building a horde like this and they say, great, so what's in it? I'm sliding the paper across the table so I'm not Mm -hmm. making them write it out for 25 minutes. Right. Yeah. So I did not roll for the gems because it's a blue dragon. They typically collect blue, purple, and green gems. So I I rolled for the value of three groups of seven, and I picked out the colors based on that off of the tables with those values. So they have star sapphires worth... A thousand gold pieces, jade worth a hundred gold pieces, and jasper worth fifty gold pieces. So seven of each of those. Man, they did well. Cool. Because it would have been so much longer. <laughs> I rolled out twenty-one. Were you, were you sitting there with the calculator, Pepperina, coming up with this? No, I did not add these together. I don't know if it actually adds up to what <laughs> a dull dragon's supposed to have, but that's what I rolled. So <laughs> all right then. Um, for the art objects. I, they're, they're a mix of 25 gold pieces, 250 gold pieces, and 750 gold pieces. Those Um, are the tables in the DMG, right? Those are the tables, yeah. So I rolled out of this book the value of each of them, and then I went to the DMG and rolled on those tables based on the amounts I got. We have a brass mug with a jade inlay, a black velvet mask stitched with silver thread, a large well-made tapestry, 
a pair of engraved bone dice, a painted gold war mask, a small gold idol, a small mirror in painted wooden frame, an embroidered silk handkerchief, a bottle stopper cork embossed in, with gold leaf and set with amethyst, and a gold locket with a painted portrait inside. I'm telling you right now, every one of those items is interesting on its own. When you list them like that, the one person keeping notes is writing furiously, and the other three or four players on the table have tuned out and are checking Facebook. Yeah, and they're they're basically just writing down, like, the amounts of what <laughs> what each of them are. So how much can I sell this small gold idol for when I get yeah. to town? Yeah, even though you're going to sit there and describe exactly what this what this idol looks like and what it does, it's small and gold. It's a small gold idol. You're going to have a Terry at the table that says, yeah, what does it look like? Oh, motherfucker. Okay, so <laughs> it's roughly seven and a half inches tall, and, <laughs> which I hear is, is, is average, mm-hmm. right? So like... And you you would sit there and describe the whole thing, but all they're writing down is the dollar value. Save yourself the headache on this. Come up with the information ahead of time. Slide that piece of paper across the table, right? It's going to make yeah. life easier. And it's going to make, it's going to also get everyone to crowd around their side of the table, right? Or to copy and paste it. If you're doing it online, they'll copy and paste it into your Discord. Everyone will mm-hmm. go, oh, cool. What's that? That generates excitement. Yeah. If listing shit, there's no excitement there. That's right. People like things to keep moving, yeah. right? So if you can give them a list where they can just read it kind of in their own time or if they're not in a particular scene or whatever, that's better for them because now they can, you can keep moving in what they want to do. The other thing to do as well is to slide that across the table or to say, like, if I've got the list in front of me and they just killed a dragon and the lair is coming down around them, they say, what's in the horde? you say roll a perception check and you list off the three or four important items on the list do you grab it before the ceiling comes down right if my okay total transparency on this i love handing lists and puzzles and shit for the players to read i love handing that out because all the players all get on the same side they're excited and i get to prep the next thing because the moment that they sit back down in their chairs like all right cool he took that and i'm gonna keep keep this i'm gonna tune to that on my next short rest They've all had that conversation like, great, roll initiative, kobolds are here, right? Like (laughs) you are prepped for the next thing already. And so um, pre-prepping your horde is not only important because it's so complex, but it's also like a great tool for you to have in the moment to keep the flow going appropriately. Mm-hmm. These little intermissions are important for DMs, right? Otherwise, you never get to eat. You'll go for eight hours without eating anything because someone's <laughs> waiting for you to move on to the next bit. True story. All so, right, so we have last- one last thing here: uh, magic items in which I rolled four of. So these you roll uh, D100. You look at what table you then have to roll off of. So it gives you like rare minor items, legendary minor items, that kind of thing um that you then roll on this, the tables this table here in fizzbands on page 73 it says horde magic items what's really cool here is that it says there's a d100 column for each age of the dragon as well mm-hmm. so that you're not going to end up with the same kind of magic items for yes. a as you would for an ancient dragon even though you may be rolling on similar tables you're not rolling on the same table which is really nice to see so I got um, two that I had to roll off of table C in the DMG, one off of table E, and one off of table D. 
I got a potion of fire giant strength, a scroll of protection, a spell scroll at ninth level, and a spell scroll at fourth level. Ninth level. See, that sounds like an appropriate adult dragon horde as far as magic mm -hmm. items go. So just so, so you you now that you've rolled this, yes. Are you going to link which one of the things are you going to link to the other hordes? Because you got potions and scrolls, right? So it's not mm -hmm. going to be one of them. Is it going to be one of the pieces of art or one of the gems? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a so magic item. That's, exactly. that's linked. Um, it could even be like pieces of a staff or something. So you have the small golden idol. You could have a small golden idol that's different in each of the hordes. Yeah. You could pick the most mundane, like smallest one, an embroidered silk handkerchief. If your party doesn't take it, there's one in each one that connects them. But by the third one, they're like, oh. Oh, that's the yeah, thing. Go. <laughs> we got to go back. That I think that it's strongly implied that it should be a magic item, but mm -hmm. clearly you will sometimes just roll potions and scrolls. Yeah. And, and whatever your linked item is, it could be, but I would recommend not having it be a consumable item. By consumable, I don't just mean like you eat it, but that it goes away after one use. Yeah. So basically you roll a lot of dice and you look at a lot of tables and that's how you build it. <laughs> Welcome to DMing. That, that, is, that is what you do, yes. That's it. That's what I've learned. <laughs> Um, so you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at it's a mimic and on Reddit at r slash it's a mimic, right? I've never done Reddit. <laughs> you've, you've, you've never done Reddit? <laughs> I've never done Reddit. <laughs> okay, neither, neither is Terry. No, uh, I only see what you guys send in discord and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, you could send us emails at info at it's a mimic.com uh make sure you send us your mailbag questions they're always taking new ones and putting them into the tables um we also would super appreciate positive reviews sharing on social media and word of mouth did i do it right yeah <laughs> perfect okay <laughs> uh let's grab our dice and roll initiatives because i want to talk about these hordes now okay Natural 20. I finally get a 14. I finally hit double digits is what you do. <laughs> I got a 10. I'm going last, but still double digits. All right. So, Terry. Yeah. How do you feel about Dragon Hordes now? Are yeah. they worthy of their legendary status? Yeah, 100%. Okay, as a tool, this is what I've learned about DMing. You know, the I'm Sorry, did you just call yourself a tool? As a tool. <laughs> that's how I started. <laughs> sorry. That's, how, that's how, how everyone on the internet starts a sentence. As a thing that I've been doing for six months, blah, 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 blah. You spent too much time on TikTok there. Yeah. As a tool, um, I, you know, I, I've DM'd a good few times now. And what I've learned is just use the tools that are there to help you because it makes life easier. And the random tables that we have for hordes and the, the little pieces of text that we have here that, that are used to guide you and make your life easier in this part of D&D really do. If you don't want to go along with exactly what's written out, it just gives you a direction to flesh your own inspirations out. And uh, and I really like the additions and the, uh, the 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 tools that we have with regards to hordes and fizz bands because it makes you realize how much more you can flesh out these dragon encounters and focus on particular parts, the hordes, the regional effects, whatever. Uh, and so I think the tools in this book are excellent. I look, I I absolutely one hundred percent agree. These hordes feel big enough now 
when I saw the horde in the Hobbit, the movie, um, it felt so big it would be unwieldy for a D and D campaign. Yeah. It was unnecessarily ridiculously big, but also it should be because it's a dragon horde, so, mm-hmm. and it's and it's like the dragon horde, right? So it is the definitive one. So I feel like it should have been that big, but it always seemed like just a nightmare or just me randomly writing down numbers. Be like there are one, three, eight, seven, nine, six silver pieces. Right, like just so that I can throw shit out. I have direction now, and I appreciate that. Um, I absolutely want to use these tables to roll up a, a horde. Um, I'm gonna throw this out there as a challenge to the people that are consistently active on our uh, subreddit. I'm curious if you have, if you can get a copy of Fizzbands, if you know what we're talking about. This is on page 73. Roll up a horde for an adult or ancient dragon and let me know how long did it take you? Because I want to hear from the experienced DMs that are on there, from the nerds that are going to spend a, a noon hour, you know, their lunch break working on this. How long does it take? Because I could get really noodly with it or I could just bang this out in 15 minutes. I'm curious to know what the average DM's experience is building a dragon horde. I haven't seen that information anywhere online yet. So, um, Peps, do you think that these are these hordes are good enough? You know, before reading into this, I never really thought about how the hordes affected the dragons magically and, like, their age and their status and their legendary actions and that sort of thing. I think it adds quite a lot of campaign ideas and hooks to... You know, you don't have to kill the dragon. You just have to fuck with its horde. And mm. that could be enough to at least knock it down. you got to get the pronunciations right. I mean, <laughs> horde. With horde. A that is a whore with the D, Terry. The D. <laughs> um, so I really, I really enjoyed that flavor. And it gave me a lot of ideas for the campaigns I'm never going to run. So. Yeah. I want to add one thing there, perhaps you kind of got me thinking about, is all of these inspirations we got from here meant that, that uh, for me anyway, combat wasn't the only way to interact with these dragons now. Because I like the, the idea that the hordes can be kind of the puzzle in their own way, like where they're mm-hmm. located, where, and it's like uh, there's puzzles within the big overarching puzzle of the campaign now. And so you're, Adam, you made a point earlier of a level eight party being able to interact with, a, with an ancient dragon successfully because however you flesh the situation out, combat may not be what happens. It's, uh, it's using the horde, using the regional effects, using whatever um, to create puzzles and, and, uh, and other exciting ways of um, interacting with dragons. Oh, shit. And like- it, it, sorry, it just occurred to me. We're, we're all stealing from hordes and stuff. Your guys are out there. So one of the problems in D&D is balancing the freaking economy. Everyone's like, what do you do with all this gold and money and shit that you're getting all of the time in the modules? You have a an adult gold dragon whose horde got looted right before the campaign started. Sink your money into that gold dragon. Get him up and powerful enough so you have an ally at level 16. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have to just take from hordes. We can donate as well. Oh. <laughs> this changes everything. <laughs> <laughs> this changes the whole game. This really does, though. This is... Like, and how dragons might choose regional leaders or stuff. Like, it's, oh man, I love it. I mean, sorry, Peps, you were about to say something. Yeah, inspired. just, you can, you can also think like, as an ancient dragon, their horde is like, they have what, eight to 10, maybe more, depending on how old they are. 
they're not next to each other, like within these 12 mile, six mile regional effects, they're hundreds of miles away. Yeah. So that could be a whole campaign of going to these and what you encounter along the way and figuring out where the dragon's at because mm -hmm. the regions all have the same effect whether the dragon's there or not. So you got to sort of dig into the lore of the lands and does it have a specific it goes to this one for this many months and this one for this many months does it have a pattern or is it chaotic and it's sort but, of a puzzle in itself like there are generations of people that have been watching the patterns and whatnot of this dragon they set up teleportation circles for you to get around as well as sites of great magical power for destroying some items like tossing shit into a volcano to rip right from lord of the rings or freezing it in a in a glacier and sending it adrift right like you could you you could have the entire civilization built up they're just looking for a group of adventurers, brave and or stupid enough to go and undermine this dragon to the point where the army can mobilize. Mm -hmm. We just need the the strike team to go in first. Mm -hmm. And there's your campaign. You've got yeah. 14 or 15 places to go. But he's had eight, nine hundred uh, thousand years to not only build the hordes, but build defenses and layers and minions. So you get to, I just sandbox that. Here you go, guys. Here's all the information the entire civilization has been able to have up until now. What are you going to do with it? Where are you going first? And what are you going to do with this info? Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, do you guys think it's easy enough to build a horde or is it too much effort for the DM? Uh, no, I think it's easy enough. I think uh, you got me thinking earlier, Adam, when you talked about the, the horde within the Hobbit. Uh, and uh, how you like to have like the ceiling coming down or whatever after effects of destroying a dragon, which takes away the uh, the like anxiety of having a large horde because not all of it may be accessible and or maybe they don't need to know everything that's in it. You, you're right. Roll a perception check. What can you perceive around you is in the horde? This horde is massive. You know, you, yep. there's no way I can tell you everything that's in it. Oh, but by the way, the ceiling is coming down or the elemental plane is breaking through or whatever because you, you've beaten the red dragon. So roll a perception check. You get these seven things. See you later. So, uh, you know, don't let the size of the horde bother you. Just have an understanding of what the essential items are or, or contents that you're going to discuss. And, uh, and everything else kind of blurs into the background if you know it's not going to be needed anyway. All right. So now I'm changing the title of the episode to Size Doesn't Matter. Is that what we... <laughs> it definitely matters, guys. It definitely okay. matters. So Pepperina says size I matters. don't care what she Jerry, told you. It matters. Jerry's telling you it doesn't. So we're learning... <laughs> I understand it's more about the girth of the horde. <laughs> it's really what you do with it, guys. How well do you invest in those dividends? Um, so, I don't know. I, I think that it's complicated enough that I wouldn't want to build more than two hordes at a time. If you've got an ancient dragon that's got 12 hordes, I'm not, I'm not going to burn an entire day rolling dice and building hordes. No. But if I know that we're going to run into a horde every four to five weeks, yeah, I'd, I'd roll them all. It, it's not, it's not um, such an overwhelming job to make it unpleasurable. Like I, I, I could do this, and I'd have fun with it too, right? And yeah, 
theme the magic items and the mundane items for the different regions or the different histories or the I'll tell the story through the horde, right? And uh, and that's something else that I would really focus on. Yeah, just have things on hand for the near future because players being players might be like, good news, DM. We've come up with a way to defeat this dragon without interacting with any of its hordes. And you're like, great, thanks for that, you know. <laughs> I'm going to just save this for the next campaign. <laughs> yeah. Um, Peps, was this too much effort for you? No, it wasn't. It was just, it was a lot of rolling a dice and writing things down. That's, I mean, you could go further into it if you wanted to. If, like you said, if you could customize it more to the dragon, you could customize it more towards your players or your campaign setting. But just coming up with a generic um, horde, it was pretty simple. Yeah. Um, Do you guys think there's anything missing from this section about hordes? Was there anything that was just standing out that you desperately want i mean clearly all of the real horde information is in the monster manual for white dragons like this kind of trophy and red dragons tend to get these kind of items and like you said perhaps the blue dragons like these kind of gems right so we can get specific and granular with it but was there anything missing from like the general the generic side of horde building i i think we needed uh the what happens next step for some of this so what is the effect on the world or the region if this horde gets removed or how specific type of items might affect everybody else like you kind of mentioned economy earlier you know if this horde is now available to everybody technically because you can't carry thirty thousand gold pieces you know but someone else is going to come in the next day how is that going to affect the trade or the economy in the immediate area and it doesn't need to be a whole lot of detail it can just be a random table with a little bit of flavor text so you have an idea of what should happen over the next few weeks. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I look back to um, original Dungeons & Dragons, and there were really three phases to every adventure. Phase one is get to the place. Phase two is do the thing at the place. And phase three is how do we get our treasure home? Mm-hmm. And that was a major factor. You would have what, what were called hirelings, where you would hire a bunch of random people and you would spend a certain amount of money to get a certain amount of protection, to get a certain number of drivers with a certain number of horses. And you're, and a lot of it was all about measuring weight and size in carts. And shit isn't really that fun. And they've kind of gotten rid of a lot of the encumbrance nonsense in fifth edition. But we've lost that entire part of the game now of the what do you do with the horde now? Congratulations, you have a Scrooge McDuck vault. What are you doing with it? So I agree with you. It's it's the next step. I just want, in the Dungeon Master's Guide 2, I want that really dry three-page section that is only going to appeal to me that is going to be what do you do with the riches once you get them? Where are your money pits, your sinkholes? Are you building strongholds? Are you buying ships are you investing in enterprises and what is that like and how do you do it and i mean we have acquisitions incorporated there's a bunch of shit and i want to say xanathars about downtime activities but man this is an ancient dragon horde comes with forty-two thousand platinum pieces which is that's just one yeah then that that's 40 that's four hundred twenty thousand gold pieces on top of all of the other shit that you get that is one line out of eight lines of treasure so that's going to fix continental hunger in yeah. the Forgotten Realms, right? So You just became Elon Musk. 
yeah. right? Like this is this is some Amazon.com level money that we're talking about here. What are you going to do with it? And there is no answer. You're going to space. There's nothing else to do, right? So uh, you also have to think about the the magic that is in those items because, as we stated, the dragon spends enough time with them, they become magic. So you're then spreading out all yeah. of this magical items throughout the land mm -hmm. that yeah. you might not even know is magical until eight hours after you kill that dragon and, you know maybe <laughs> the reason that the dragon has that horde is because the dragon knows fine well what is going to happen when that level of power is distributed across the world right but us being humans think we can fix everything mm -hmm. uh, by throwing money at it uh could may end up causing more problems than we had before it could and, start wars over these regions like exactly. no this horde is in my section of this area this kingdom so it's mine and it belongs to me well but this edge of it is on my land so it, it could start all sorts of and that's how it all works and usually wars start because it's too difficult to just not have a war right because it's because it's that close that all the time mm -hmm. that somebody just goes first or thinks the other person did and that's exactly what would happen here i mean that was the entire plot line of the another two hobbit movies that we debatably did not need was we have this horde now great the dragon's gone who gets it yeah and how do we divvy this up among the armies and now there's a power vacuum but we haven't even talked about the power vacuums of hordes shifting and and moving from one person to another what does that do, do you do you suddenly have that one sparkly gem and now every cobalt will be like okay you're the boss exactly and the, the the blue dragon twins up in the other country are going oh you got rid of the red dragon well tremendous well good luck it sounds like it's going to be really peaceful for you we won't ever come anywhere near you i promise like come on mm -hmm. so um were there any final thoughts before we wrap this up you know what my final thought is uh, to newer dms while this may initially seem overwhelming because it's more information to read it will ultimately make your life a lot easier and more enjoyable so this is one particular book i definitely recommend using paprina any final thoughts um yeah i definitely agree with that it it adds so much flavor and as somebody who doesn't necessarily dm that much um it gave me so many ideas and i'm sure my husband is so tired of me talking about layers and hordes because i'm like did you know this and he's like yeah i knew that and i'm like but did you you could do this with it <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it got me so excited about things and he's like okay go to sleep um i, I want to leave you with one with one final thought that occurred to me um we covered essentially three topics today one was the idea of the multiverse, one was the idea of layers and regional effects, and one was the idea of hordes. Um, do you think that maybe as a dragon goes and kills their alternative selves, they are then bringing those hordes with them into their original, like this is where you get all these, these hordes from. There wasn't, there were not 10 billion gold pieces in the kingdom 300 years ago, but he is murdering other dragons, looting their hordes and bringing the gold back. And when he does that, he gets additional layer actions. And that's why he's so damn powerful. So maybe him powering up is him just powering up his horde and therefore powering up the region and the layers. Yeah. Maybe it all comes back to how dragons interact with their hordes. So that pretty much wraps up this episode on some of the updates from Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. But we're not done with dragons by a damn sight. 
There are a lot of other dragons in Dungeons and Dragons, so subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and what insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, Dan is going to take the reins and take us on a tour of one of his favorite campaign settings in Dungeons & Dragons. Thanks for listening to another episode of the It's Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, as well as a store for some awesome merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word to everyone you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. I said at the beginning of the episode um, that in the beginning there were dragons before there was anything else. And they, they built the world and it was dragons it is on record in the forgotten realms specifically but other places as well that the first intelligent mortals that wandered the realm were lizard folk and yuan ti and other scaled creatures like that um all of kobolds are relatively new do you guys think that we're slowly evolving away from dragons like is that is that the the overall idea here is that we started off scaled we're just getting smoother and smoother as we go and that's why we end up with like changelings and asmrs and shit this this deep into the into the history 13 8 17 17 i was so excited that you got single digits all right (laughs) terry do you does it make sense to you that these lizard folk and you on t and whatnot are like the first dragon people yeah it makes sense but i think the idea that we have now of the multiverse means that i don't feel pressured to go in a particular direction because it seems that we can move through these universes right or like dragons certainly are and so where there may be one universe within this multiverse that has moved much further along and maybe they are at the point of like changelings and smoother creatures perhaps in another uh, universe they're not at that point yet and naturally over time as worlds are built and they fall away and we lose track of the history there may be a blending of this and so i always feel um comforted in that i I don't have to feel pressured to go in a particular direction um yes i think the lizard folk and yuan certainly came first and i definitely think that the smoother creatures that are further away from that draconic ancestry are, are likely a sign of which direction we are going in a particular universe but that's okay in my game because i don't think it's going to affect things too much for me because I, I, to- I just totally realized that pepperina rolled highest but i was so upset I did. Yeah. you just totally <laughs> yeah, sorry I, I mean, it's because I we use the, i think <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the metric system in Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, Peps. Okay. So a different, so a different question for you, so that you can go first. Um, do you like linking the UNT and lizard folk and stuff to dragons, or are these guys separate enough that you would you don't like the snake and dragon parallel? I don't really necessarily see them as on the same level. I guess. Um, There's a lot of instances. Yeah where we have like in the lore where there's a dragon cult that is run by UNT or they don't have kobolds that worship the dragon it's lizard folk instead and it never really sits right with me yeah i i mean why aren't they dragonborns or something half dragons yeah kobolds right yeah that have more of the draconic bloodline in them 
but yeah, and it, it also doesn't make sense to me because the UNT and the and the lizard folk are barbaric, mm-hmm. right? In the lore, they had grand great empires that have risen and fallen, and the lizard folk fell so far that they're essentially just low intelligent barbarians that are hyper literal live in the swamps and they don't have technology whereas the UNT are trying to raise their old ancient cosmic gods right to return back to power again but i mean that doesn't really fit with the dragon narrative for me yeah it does dragons are like so much about the magic within them and connecting that to the the land and the area and their things that that that's sort of their main drive you know i don't yeah and that's, it's that's, not about bringing a cosmic power or yeah, any of it, that sort of thing it, it might be getting revenge on tms mm-hmm. behalf right yeah but i don't know i i really do i really do feel like the older quote unquote the older races in D they don't necessarily need to be tied to dragons um now that they've included this first world and and terry says and he's right. It's a multiverse. You don't have to be beholden to anything anymore. You do what mm-hmm. you want, right? So it just, it never really sat right with me. And I would, now that we have all of this, these dragons that are made of the primordial energies, their special dragon magic, special dragon gifts, special dragon items, hordes are special dragon things. And then lizard folk are that way. Yeah. They, they they're have, in a swamp somewhere over there. Yeah. They have nothing to do with this shit. I would, I would rather remove them from the narrative of, of draconic, campaigns as a general rule i mean anybody can worship a dragon hell you two do so that's true that's fair (laughs) fair point well presented Mm -hmm. (laughs) um sorry for the editor who has to listen to all of this shit ahead of time i don't know (laughs) who is editing this uh i believe it says you are (laughs) god damn past adam fucking me again story of my life Thanks for listening. Bye.